It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Will riots, namely race riots engulf the United States in less than a month if Barack Obama loses the 2012 presidential election to Mitt Romney. Whether you like Obama or you like Romney, whether you think the whole thing's a sham and both guys are puppets of the globalist, that doesn't matter when it comes to riots in this country now being reported on all over the place, the buildup towards them, the chatter, uh, the racial tension, the racial attacks. It's, it's all over the news, but it's not getting a lot of national attention. It's being covered locally. The Drudge Report links to shots fired through window at Obama campaign office in Denver and to a report posted at Infowars.com, Will the Election Results Cause Riots? And there is the report by Michael Schneider, does a lot of great research at the Economic Collapse blog. Will the election results cause massive riots to erupt all over America? And he goes through Twitter and Facebook comments where people are saying, I'm going to riot, I'm going to get violent, I'm going to do all this if Obama doesn't win. And we've got 1,471 comments on this report. Well, it's not just Michael Schneider that's picked up on this. We've been covering it earlier in the week. Uh, the Western Journalism Center, of course, uh, this is from a couple days ago, four days ago. Thomas Sowell, the uh, journalist and researcher, uh, who just so happens to be black, he says, look, I won't be politically incorrect. He predicts race riots if Obama loses by black folks. And I've been on the websites. That's who's saying they're planning on rioting. That is not going to help black people if major U.S. cities get burned out. That is going to hurt your economic and political future. And I've seen people, when I talk about this, say, oh, you're just scared we're coming to get you. Oh, yeah, I live out in the country, 30 miles outside Austin, and I live around people that are armed to the teeth. I am afraid of division in this country and mindless racism being used by the Democratic Party to control people. And the way they've been hyping that you're racist if you don't vote for Obama, trying to give people a political blank check to feel like they can go out and do this. And Thomas Sowell talks about it in his creator's uh, syndicate piece as well, our race riots news. So that's just some of it. There's an excellent article, came out a few days ago, uh, over at Examiner, Twitter explodes with threats of riots and gives a bunch of examples, and more examples are coming out. This is very, very serious. You know, we see this whenever there's sporting events, people riot all over the world. We've seen political riots all over the world recently because you also add to this not just a black president and people saying it's racist if you don't vote for him, mainly the media trying to stir this up to control the debate, but you've got Chicago papers uh, saying the same thing, and you've got the fact that we're in a recession slash depression. The powers that be don't care which puppet gets in, I'm telling you. They want riots to happen so that they can take liberties and freedoms and expand the police state in this country. Now, 
I want to see what you have to say under this on the YouTube video we're posting and at InfoWars.com or BuzzAbundant.com in the comments. And please send me uh, links to media you found and other Twitter and Facebook and YouTube comments where people are pushing this. There's hundreds of examples I found just today. I'm going to try to codify some of them into an article tomorrow on the Sunday radio show. I'll be covering at 4 to 6 p.m. Central at InfoWars.com or on local AM and FMs in your area. I know the Drudge Report, DrudgeReport.com is also covering uh, the latest developments uh, on this front as well. So be sure and watch that space. But uh, this is uh, definitely uh, being reported on. This is definitely being covered. And you should review what's happened with uh, memorable sports riots. Look at these people kissing here in this photo like it's fun. Again, it's become like a sport to go out and do this. And people are saying, I can't wait to riot. People, you complain there's not stores in your neighborhood and things, and then you go burn them down. I mean, don't riot. Don't riot. And please don't comment like you've done in the past when I've talked about this saying, oh, you're just scared and all this crap. You know what? I am scared of this country going into a deeper depression and, and of all the division, and I'm sick of it. And I'm tired of the welfare pimps at MSNBC pushing all this and saying you're racist if you don't want government-run health care and all the rest of the crud. They're the real racists using race to control people, and I've had it. I've had it. All right, Alex Jones signing off for InfoWars.com. Please give me your take on this entire situation and continue to uh, track DrudgeReport.com, InfoWars.com, other sites that are covering this. Uh, and we'll, again, cover on the radio tomorrow. Will there be riots, namely race riots, in major cities or nationwide because of the mix of the imploding economy? but also because of the racial situation with the first black president. Thomas Sowell and others think so. Tell us what you think. Context of white supremacy. Gusty renegade justice. Back for another broadcast on racism, white supremacy. Uh, we just had our longest break from being on the program in over three years. Uh, that is one thing that I did stop to take note of while we were off the air. Uh, it had been, I think, since April of 2009, since we've had more than 10 days between broadcasts on the program. Not that that, you know, means a whole lot. The system of white supremacy is still rolling strong, but that did stand out. We have been doing some work, attempting to do some work, working against the system of white supremacy. We should be back for the compensatory call-in tomorrow evening, Saturday program. 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific. I'm not sure what the issue was with the Black Talk Radio Network. I had loaded the program and same thing that I had been using before to broadcast over there. Uh, it was up and working this afternoon. I did a little test run just to make sure everything was cool. Uh, seemed like we were working. Uh, went for the live broadcast, and it did not work. Again, I'm not sure 
what happened with that. Hopefully we'll get that resolved in the next 24 hours, uh, be able to get in touch with Mr. Reed, and uh, we'll have it worked out so that the program will be broadcasting at the Black Talk Radio Network tomorrow. Uh, we might have multiple sites running, but hopefully we'll be back over there as well, Black Talk Radio Network. Anyway, uh, we left off three weeks ago to the day, Turner Diaries, uh, Dr. William Pierce, fitting in some way that that is the program we will return to the air with. Uh, this is the last installment in our sessions on the Turner Diaries. Uh, they actually deleted my account here at TalkShoe during that broadcast, so I'm sure a lot of people missed it because I didn't get an opportunity to upload it as I didn't have an account there anymore, uh, and I didn't have my computer anymore after uh, two days after that. It was just uh, a lot to deal with on the plantation at one time, uh, which continues. We are at war. At any rate, I will be uploading that broadcast along with this broadcast once we wrap up today. So you'll have the opportunity to uh, catch up. If you didn't hear that program, you'll be able to catch up. And then the audio for this program will be available as well. Right on. We will uh, catch up. I'm sure people have many observations, things they've been seeing on the plantation in the three weeks since we were last on the air. We can catch up on all of that tomorrow. I look forward to hearing that. In fact, homework assignment, you can bring one article, one observation, one bit of information that you would like to discuss or that you would like to share. Have that ready for the part, uh, broadcast tomorrow evening, compensatory call-in, again, 9 p.m., Eastern, 8 p.m. Central, 6 p.m. Pacific. Looking forward to hearing from listeners. Catching up, lost time. Last installment of the Turner Diaries, uh, the quick, I guess, summary of where we are up to this point. Earl Turner, the main white man in the book. The organization, they are the band of white people, in my opinion, less powerful, low-level white people who are upset. They feel like there is a quote-unquote system that is working against white people, constantly accusing white people of being racist. You heard Alex Jones at the beginning, right? Terrible world for white people. There's no white racial solidarity, Kevin McDonald. Uh, they've been bombing different buildings, getting ammunition, killing folks. Uh, their base is in California. Uh, they marched off a large population of black, non-white people uh, during the segment that we did three weeks ago. Uh, they were going to relocate them, these non-white people, the ones that they didn't kill. They were going to march them off to an area with the white people that they were warring against because they thought that this would irritate them, this extra dose of brotherhood, one of my favorite lines from the book. Um, <clears throat> they have an offensive plan uh, where they're going to make some more violent attacks against the quote-unquote system. So these are Jews or just white people who are not going along with the white 
supremacy plan that they think should be in place, but they have other violent uh, attacks in place. I think when we last left off, they were again in disguise. They were going to pretend to be so-called Latinos uh, to, to kind of help them maneuver and get to where they needed to be for their next uh, attack. So that, that's where we left off at. Again, I'll upload the audio for our last program, so that will be available. People can catch up, and then we'll get started. You should be able to follow. It's just low-level white people going around, attacking, being violent, killing people, blowing stuff up because they're angry, don't think things are operating according to the racist agenda that they think should be functioning on the planet. So we will begin, same format as before. We'll get questions, callers, active participation, hopefully, once we end the first segment. I'll get the phone line, same number as always, hasn't changed. You can dial in. We'll get your comments, questions, hands, all of that. Uh, you can tweet, put it on Facebook, let people know that we are back on the air and that they can tune in live to uh, hear the study session. And we should be on for this entire weekend tomorrow study uh, excuse me the compensatory call in and then this Sunday Mr. DK Wilson uh, black author uh, we were trying to get him on the program last month before all the difficulties came in but uh, we were able to reschedule to be with us Sunday evening or Sunday afternoon excuse me Sunday afternoon uh, 6 p.m. Eastern 5 p.m. Central and 3 p.m. in the afternoon Sunday D.K. Wilson. So tune in, tweet it, put it on Facebook, let folks know, context of white supremacy, back on the air. Dr. William Pierce, The Turner Diaries. This is the uh, first installment of the week, and here we go. We also kept a transistor radio tuned to a Mexican station blaring soulful Chicano music whenever we were within earshot of system troops. Once, when we needed to refuel, we were briefly tempted to pull in at a military gasoline depot. But the long line of waiting trucks and the groups of blacks lounging about made us decide against the risk. We stopped instead at a roadside restaurant curio shop filling station in the shadow of Mount Whitney. The place seemed deserted. So two of our men began filling our fuel tank at the gasoline pump while I and the others headed for the restaurant to see if we could find any food to take along. We found four soldiers inside, quite drunk, sitting around a table cluttered with empty bottles and glasses. Three were blacks and the fourth was white. Anybody around here we can pay for gas and some food, I asked. No, man, just take what you want. We ran the honky owners out of here three days ago, one of the blacks responded. But not before we had some real fun with their daughter, eh? The white exclaimed, grinning and nudging one of his companions. Perhaps it was the grim stare I gave him. Or perhaps he suddenly noticed Corporal Rodriguez's very blue eyes. Or it may have been that the stain on our faces had become too streaked from perspiration. In any event, the white soldier suddenly stopped grinning and whispered something to the blacks. At the same time, he leaned back and reached for his rifle, which was resting against an adjacent table. Before he even touched his weapon, I pivoted my M16 off my shoulder and raked the group at the table with a blast of fire, 
which sent them all sprawling to the floor, spurting blood. The three blacks were quite obviously dead, but their white renegade companion, though shot through the chest, raised himself to a sitting position and asked in a plaintive voice, Hey, man, what the shit? Corporal Rodriguez finished him off. He pulled his bayonet from his belt scabbard, seized the dying white by his hair, and hauled him off the floor, the point of the bayonet jammed under his chin. You piece of race-mixing filth, go join your black brothers. And with one savage stroke, Rodriguez practically decapitated him. Five miles further down the highway, at the intersection where we wanted to turn east, a military police jeep with two blacks in it was blocking the side road. A third black was directing traffic, waving all northbound military vehicles on down the main highway. We ignored his signals and turned right, going far out on the shoulder to get around the jeep. The black traffic controller blew his whistle furiously, and all three MPs gesticulated and waved their arms wildly at us. But our Corporal Rodriguez just grinned and gave his black power salute, shouted, Siesta Frijoli, hasta la vista, and a few other Spanish words which came into his head, pointed meaningfully down the road ahead and stepped on the accelerator. We left the blacks in a shower of dust and gravel. The black with the whistle was still tooting and waving his arms as we went around the bend, and that was the last we saw of him. Apparently, he and his companions did not think it worthwhile trying to follow us, but our three men hidden in the back of the truck kept their fingers on the triggers of their automatic rifles just in case. From there until we got to the outskirts of St. Louis, we didn't run into any more concentrations of system troops. But we accomplished that only by avoiding the major highways and cities and sticking to secondary roads. We rattled and bounced across the mountains and deserts of California, Nevada, Utah, and Colorado, and then the plains of Kansas and the rolling hills of Missouri for 75 hours straight, stopping only to refuel and relieve ourselves. While two of us rode in front and a third kept watch out the back of the truck, two of us at a time tried to sleep, but without much success. When we reached eastern Missouri, we changed our tactics for two reasons. First, we heard the radio broadcast of the bombing of Miami and Charleston and the organization's ultimatum to the system. That made the time factor even more important than before. We couldn't afford any further delays from circuitous routes along back roads. Second, the danger of our being stopped by the authorities between St. Louis and Washington decreased sharply as all hell broke loose in the country giving us the opportunity to adopt a new ploy. We had been monitoring both the civilian broadcast band and the military communications bands during the trip, and we were about 80 miles west of St. Louis when a special announcer cut into the afternoon weather report. The previous day, at noon, a nuclear bomb had been detonated without warning in Miami Beach, the announcer said, killing an estimated 60,000 people and causing enormous damage. A second nuclear bomb had been detonated outside Charleston, South Carolina, just four hours ago, but casualty and damage reports were not yet available. Both bombings were the work of the organization, said the announcer, and he would now read the text of an organization ultimatum. 
I jotted down the ultimatum almost word for word on a scrap of paper as it came over the truck radio. And this is very nearly it. To the President and the Congress of the United States and the commanders of all U.S. armed forces, we, the Revolutionary Command of the organization, issue the following demands and warning. First, cease immediately all buildup of military forces in eastern California and adjacent areas and abandon all plans for an invasion of the liberated zone of California. Second, abandon all plans for a nuclear strike against the liberated zone of California or any portion of it. Third, make known to the people of the United States through all the communications channels at your disposal these demands and this warning. If you have failed to comply with any of our three demands by noon tomorrow, August 27th, we will detonate a second nuclear device in some population center of the United States, just as we detonated one in the Miami, Florida area a few minutes ago. We will continue to detonate one nuclear device every 12 hours thereafter until you have complied. We furthermore warn you that if you make any surprise, hostile move against the liberated zone of California, we will immediately detonate more than 500 nuclear devices which have already been hidden in key target areas throughout the United States. More than 40 of these devices are now located in the New York City area. In addition, we will immediately use all the nuclear missiles still available to us to destroy the Jewish presence in Palestine. Finally, we warn you that, in any event, we intend to liberate first the entire United States and then the remainder of this planet. When we have done so, we will liquidate all the enemies of our people, including in particular all white persons who have consciously aided those enemies. We are aware now, and we will continue to be aware, of your most confidential plans and of every order you receive from your Jewish masters. Abandon your race treason now, or abandon all hope for yourselves when you fall into the hands of the people you have betrayed. At this point is inserted an editorial note to the reader. Turner's version of the organization's ultimatum is essentially correct, except for a few minor errors in wording and his omission of one sentence from the next to last paragraph. The full and exact text of the ultimatum is in chapter 9 of Professor Anderson's definitive History of the Great Revolution. Here Earl Turner's text resumes. We had pulled off the road when the special announcer came on, and it took us a few minutes to gather our thoughts and decide what to do. We had not really expected things to develop so rapidly. Those fellows who took the warheads to Miami and Charleston must have either left a day or two ahead of us, or they must have really been burning up the highways to get there so soon. Despite our non-stop driving, we felt like a bunch of shirkers, we knew the fat was really in the fire. We were in the middle of a nuclear civil war, and within the next few days, the fate of the planet would be decided for all time. Now it was either the Jews or the white race, and everyone knew the game was for keeps. I still haven't figured out all the details of our strategy leading up to the ultimatum. I don't know why, for example, Miami and Charleston were chosen as initial targets although I've heard a rumor that the rich Jews who were evacuated from New York were being temporarily housed in the Charleston area. And Miami, of course, already had a superabundance of Jews. 
But why not take out the New York City area instead with its two and a half megakikes? Perhaps our bombs weren't really in place yet in New York, despite what our ultimatum said. And I'm also not sure why our ultimatum took the particular form it did, all stick and no carrot. Perhaps it was deliberately intended to stampede the cattle, which indeed it has. Or perhaps there were some under-the-table communications between Revolutionary Command and the system's military leaders which determined the form of the ultimatum. In any event, it has had the effect of splitting the system right down the middle. The Jews and nearly all the politicians are in one faction, and nearly all the military leaders are in another faction. The Jewish faction is demanding the immediate nuclear annihilation of California, regardless of the consequences. The accursed Goyim have raised their hands against the chosen people and must be destroyed at any cost. The military faction, on the other hand, is in favor of a temporary truce, while an effort is made to find our 500, a forgivable exaggeration, nuclear devices, and disarm them. After hearing that broadcast, our only thought was to get our deadly cargo to Washington as soon as possible. We knew everyone would be off balance for a while as a result of what had just happened, and we decided to take advantage of the general confusion by converting our truck into an emergency vehicle and barreling straight down the highway toward our destination. We didn't have a siren, but we did have flashing red lights front and rear, and we completed the conversion a few minutes later by stopping in a rural hardware store and buying some cans of spray paint, which, with some hastily improvised stencils made from torn newspapers, we used to paint Red Cross symbols in the appropriate places on our truck. After that, we made Washington in less than 20 hours, despite the chaotic conditions on the highways. We sped along shoulders to get past stalled traffic, drove on the wrong side of the road with horn blaring and lights flashing, bounced over culverts and open fields to get around blocked intersections, and generally ignored all traffic controllers, bluffing our way through more than a dozen checkpoints. Our first bomb went into Fort Belvoir, the big army base just south of Washington, where I was locked up for more than a year. We had to wait two maddening days to make contact with our inside man there so we could arrange to get the bomb inside the base and hidden in the right area. Rodriguez went over the fence with the bomb strapped on his back. I received a radio signal from him the next day confirming the successful completion of his mission. Meanwhile, the rest of us planted a second bomb in the District of Columbia, where it will be able to take out a couple of hundred thousand blacks when it goes, not to mention a few government agencies and a critical portion of the capital's transportation network. I didn't have my final orders on the third bomb until this afternoon. That will go into the Silver Spring area north of here, the center of the Maryland suburban Jewish community. The fourth one is intended for the Pentagon, but security is so tight there, I still haven't figured a way to get it anywhere near the place. I must confess that my mind has not been entirely on my work since I've been back here. Catherine and I have stolen time from our organization responsibilities to be together. Neither of us had realized how much we have come to mean to each other until we were separated again this summer, so soon after my escape from prison. In the month we were together this spring, before I was sent to Texas, and then to Colorado, and finally to California, we became as close 
as any two people can possibly be. Things have been hard for Catherine and the others here while I was gone, especially since July 4th. They have been under enormous pressure from two directions. The organization has been pushing them without mercy to continually step up their level of activism, while the danger of being caught by the political police has grown worse every week. The system is resorting to new methods in its fight against us. Massive house-to-house -house searches of multi-block areas, astronomical rewards for informers, much tighter controls on all civilian movement. In many other parts of the country, these repressive measures have been more sporadic. This program is copyright 1995 by National Vanguard Books. Post Office Box 330, Hillsboro, West Virginia, 24946. All rights reserved. In many other parts of the country, these repressive measures have been more sporadic and they have broken down entirely in those areas where the system has not been able to maintain public order, especially since the panic caused by the bombings of Miami and Charleston. But around Washington, the system still has things in a very tight grip, and it's tough. Late this afternoon, Catherine and I slipped out of the shop for a couple of hours and went for a walk. We strolled by several groups of soldiers in sandbagged machine gun emplacements outside office buildings on past the smoke-blackened rubble of a suburban subway station in which Catherine herself had planted a dynamite bomb just two weeks ago, through a park-like area where a loudspeaker mounted high on a lamp post was blaring out exhortations to all right-thinking citizens to immediately report to the political police the slightest manifestation of racism on the part of their neighbors or co-workers, and out onto one of the main highway bridges across the Potomac River from Virginia into the District of Columbia. There was no traffic on the bridge because it ended abruptly 50 yards from the Virginia shore in a tangle of shattered concrete and twisted reinforcing rods. The organization had blown it up in July and no effort had yet been made to repair it. It was fairly quiet there at the end of the bridge with only the screaming of police sirens in the distance and the occasional clatter of a police helicopter swooping overhead. We talked, we embraced, and we silently surveyed the scene around us as the sun went down. We and our companions have certainly made an influence on the world in the last few months, both on the suburban world of ordinary white people on the Virginia side of the bridge and on the system's world of bustling government offices on the other side. And yet, the system is all too evidently still alive all around us. What a contrast with the situation in California. Catherine was full of questions about what life is like in the liberated zone, and I tried to tell her as best I could, but I'm afraid that mere words are inadequate for expressing the difference between the way I felt in California and the way I feel here. It is more a spiritual thing than merely a difference in the political and social environments. As we stood there talking above the swirling eddies at the end of the bridge, our bodies pressed together, the world growing dark around us, a group of young Negroes came out onto the other stump of the bridge from the Washington side. They began horsing around in typical Negro fashion, a couple of them urinating into the river. Finally, one of them spotted us, and they all began shouting and making obscene gestures. For me, at least, 
That accentuated the difference, which I could not find words to express. The next diary entry is dated September 18, 1993. So much has happened, so much has been lost in these last two weeks, I can hardly force myself to begin writing about it. I am alive and in good health, yet there are moments when I envy the tens of millions who have died in recent days. My soul has dried up inside me. I am like a walking dead man. All that I have been able to think about, all that has been running through my mind over and over again, is the single overwhelming fact. Catherine is gone. Before today, when I was not absolutely certain of her fate, that fact tormented me and gave me no rest. Now that I know she is dead, however, the torment is gone, and I merely feel a great emptiness, an irreplaceable loss. There is important work for me to do, and I know that I must now put the past out of my mind and get on with it. But tonight, I must record my memories, my thoughts. In the chaos of these days, millions perish without leaving a ripple behind. They will be forever unremembered, forever nameless. But I can at least commit to these flimsy pages my memory of Catherine and the events which she and our other comrades have helped to shape and hope that my diary outlives me. That at least we owe to our dead, to our martyrs, that we do not forget them or their deeds. It was September 7th, a Wednesday, that I finished installing our third bomb. I and two other members of our bomb team picked it up on Monday from the hiding place where the last warhead is still stashed, and we took it to Maryland. I had already pinpointed the location where I wanted to install it, but troop movements were so heavy that week throughout the Washington area that we had to wait in Maryland nearly three days for an opportunity to approach the target location. Civilian vehicular traffic has long been quite encumbered in the Washington area by roadblocks, restricted sections of many roads, inspection points, and so on. But that week, it had become almost impossible. On the way back to our printing shop headquarters, the roads were congested by long streams of civilian vehicles, all going in the opposite direction and piled high with household belongings lashed to doors, hoods, and roofs. Then about half a mile from the shop, I ran into a new military roadblock, which hadn't been there when I left. Coils of barbed wire were strung across the road, and a tank was parked behind the barbed wire. I turned around and tried another street. It was blocked also. I shouted across the barrier to a soldier, telling him where I was headed and asking him what unblocked street I could take to get there. You can't get there at all, he shouted back. This is a security area. Everyone was evacuated this morning. Any civilian spotted inside the perimeter will be shot on sight. I was stunned. What had happened to Catherine and the others? Apparently, the military authorities had suddenly extended the radius of the security area around the Pentagon from its former two miles to three miles without warning. Our shop had been a safe half mile outside the former perimeter, and it had never occurred to us that it would be extended. But it had been, evidently to keep the organization from planting a nuclear bomb close enough to take out the Pentagon. 
Actually, I considered the former perimeter adequate protection from our 60 kiloton warheads. Since the Pentagon was long ago equipped with blast shutters over all the windows and surrounded by reinforced concrete blast deflectors. I'd been trying without success to figure how to get a bomb inside that perimeter since I arrived back in Washington from California. I drove to our unit's emergency rendezvous point a few miles south of Alexandria, but there was no one there and no message for me. I had no way to contact Washington Field Command to find out where Catherine, Bill, and Carol were because all our communications equipment was in the shop. But the fact they weren't at the rendezvous point made me almost certain that they had been arrested. It was already past midnight, but I immediately headed north again toward the area where the evacuees I had passed earlier were bound. I thought I might find out from someone who had lived in the vicinity of our shop what had happened to my comrades. It was a foolishly dangerous thought, born of my sense of desperation and I was probably fortunate that a military truck convoy had the highway so thoroughly blocked that I was finally obliged to pull off the road and sleep until morning. When I finally did reach the refugee area later that day, I soon realized that the chance of obtaining the information I sought was very slim. A sea of army tents had been erected in a huge suburban supermarket parking lot and in an adjacent field. Around the edge of the encampment, was a jam-packed mass of outdoor chemical toilets, civilian vehicles still piled high with household goods, refugees, and soldiers. I wandered through the milling throng for nearly three hours and saw no familiar faces. I tried questioning a few people at random, but I got nowhere. People were frightened and gave me only evasive answers or none at all. They were miserable and bewildered, but they wanted no more trouble than they already had and questions about arrests they might have witnessed spelled trouble to them. As I passed one tent about twice as large as the others, I heard muffled screams and hysterical sobbing coming from inside, interspersed with loud, coarse, masculine laughter and banter. A dozen black soldiers were lined up at the entrance. I stopped to find out what was happening, just as two grinning black soldiers forced their way through the throng in front of the tent and went inside, dragging a terrified, sobbing white girl about 14 years old between them. The raping cue moved forward another space. I ran over to a white officer wearing a major's insignia who was standing only about 50 yards away. I began angrily protesting what was happening, but before I had finished my first sentence, the officer turned shamefacedly away from me and hurried off in the opposite direction. Two white soldiers nearby cast their eyes downward and disappeared between two tents. No one wanted to be suspected of racism. I fought down a nearly overpowering impulse to draw my pistol and begin shooting everyone in sight, and then left. I drove to the one place I was reasonably sure was still manned by organization personnel, the old gift shop in Georgetown. It was just outside the new Pentagon security perimeter. I arrived there as dusk was falling and pulled the pickup truck around to the rear service entrance. I had just climbed out of the truck and stepped into the shadows at the rear of the building when the world around me suddenly lit up as bright as noon for a moment. First there was an immensely bright flash of light, 
Then a weaker glow which cast moving shadows and changed from white to yellow to red in the course of a few seconds. I ran to the alley so that I could have a more nearly unobstructed view of the sky. What I saw chilled my blood and caused the hairs on the back of my neck to rise. An enormous, bulbous, glowing thing, a splotchy ruby red in color for the most part, but shot through with dark streaks and also dappled with a shifting pattern of brighter orange and yellow areas, was rising into the northern sky and casting its ominous blood-red light over the land below. It was truly a vision from hell. As I watched, the gigantic fireball continued to expand and rise, and a dark column, like the stem of an immense toadstool, became visible beneath it. Bright electric blue tongues of fire could be seen flickering and dancing over the surface of the column. They were huge lightning bolts, but at their distance no thunder could be heard from them. When the noise finally came, it was a dull, muffled sound, yet still overwhelming. The sort of sound one might expect to hear if an inconceivably powerful earthquake rocked a huge city and caused a thousand hundred-story skyscrapers to crumble into ruins simultaneously. I realized that I was witnessing the annihilation of the city of Baltimore, 35 miles away, but I could not understand the enormous magnitude of the blast. Could one of our 60 kiloton bombs have done that? It seemed more like what one would expect from a megaton bomb. The government news reports that night and the next day claimed that the warhead which destroyed Baltimore, killing more than a million people, as well as the blasts which destroyed some two dozen other major American cities the same day, had been set off by us. They also claimed that the government had counterattacked and destroyed the nest of racist vipers in California. As it turned out, both claims were false, but it was two days before I learned the full story of what had actually happened. Meanwhile, it was with a feeling of deepest despair that I and half a dozen others who were gathered around the television set in the darkened basement of the gift shop late that night heard a newscaster gloatingly announce the destruction of our liberated zone in California. He was a Jew, and he really let his emotions carry him away. I have never before heard or seen anything like it. After a solemn rundown of most of the cities which had been hit that day, with preliminary estimates of the death tolls, sample, and in Detroit, which the racist fiends struck with two of their missiles, they murdered over 1.4 million innocent American men, women, and children of all races. He came to New York. At that point, tears actually appeared in his eyes, and his voice broke. Between sobs, he gasped out the news that 18 separate nuclear blasts had leveled Manhattan and the surrounding boroughs and suburbs out to a radius of approximately 20 miles, with an estimated 14 million killed outright, and perhaps another 5 million expected to die of burns or radiation sickness within the next few days. Then he lapsed into Hebrew and began a strange wailing chant as tears streamed down his cheeks and his clenched fist pounded his breast. After a few seconds of this, he recovered, and his demeanor changed completely. Anguish was replaced first by a burning hatred for those who had destroyed his beloved Jewish New York City, 
then by an expression of grim satisfaction, which gradually turned into an exultant gloating. But we have taken our vengeance against our enemies, and they are no more. Time and again, throughout history, the nations have risen up against us and tried to expel us or kill us, but we have always triumphed in the end. No one can resist us. All those who have tried, Egypt, Persia, Rome, Spain, Russia, Germany, have themselves been destroyed, and we have always emerged triumphant from the ruins. We have always survived and prospered, and now we have utterly crushed the latest of those who have raised their hands against us. Just as Moshe smote the Egyptian, so have we smitten the organization. His tongue flickered wetly over his lips, and his dark eyes gleamed balefully as he described the hail of nuclear annihilation, which he said had been unleashed on California that very afternoon. Their precious racial superiority did not help them a bit when we fired hundreds of nuclear missiles into the racist stronghold, the newscaster gloated. The white vermin died like flies. We can only hope they realized in their last moments that many of the loyal soldiers who pressed the firing buttons for the missiles which killed them were black or Chicano or Jewish. Yes, the whites and their criminal racial pride have been wiped out in California, but now we must kill the racists everywhere else so that racial harmony and brotherhood can be restored to America. We must kill them, kill them, kill, kill. Then he lapsed into Hebrew again, and his voice became louder and harsher. He stood up and leaned into the camera, an incarnation of pure hatred, as he shrieked and gibbered in his alien tongue, gobs of saliva flying from his mouth and dribbling down his chin. This extraordinary performance must have been embarrassing to some of his less emotional brethren, because he was suddenly cut off in mid-shriek and replaced by a Gentile, who continued to give out revised casualty estimates into the early hours of the morning. Gradually, during the next 48 hours, we learned the true story of that dreadful Thursday, both from later and more nearly accurate government newscasts and from our own sources. The first and most important news we received came early Friday morning in a coded message from Revolutionary Command to all the organization's units around the country. California had not been destroyed. Vandenberg had been annihilated, and two large missiles had struck the city of Los Angeles, causing widespread death and destruction. But at least 90% of the people in the liberated zone had survived, partly because they had been given a few minutes advanced warning and had been able to take shelter. Unfortunately for the people in other parts of the country, there was no advance warning, and the total death toll, including those who have died of burns, other wounds, and radiation in the last 10 days, is approximately 60 million. The missiles which caused these deaths, however, were not ours, except in the case of New York City, which received a barrage first from Vandenberg and then from the Soviet Union. Baltimore, Detroit, and the other American cities which were hit, even Los Angeles, were all the victims of Soviet missiles. Vandenberg Air Force Base was the only domestic target hit by the U.S. government. The cataclysmic chain of events began with an extraordinarily painful decision by Revolutionary Command. 
Reports being received by Revolutionary Command in the first week of this month indicated a gradual but steady shift of the balance of power from the military faction in the government, which wanted to avoid a nuclear showdown with us, to the Jewish faction, which demanded the immediate annihilation of California. The Jews feared that otherwise the existing stalemate between the liberated zone and the rest of the country might become permanent, which would mean an almost certain victory for us eventually. To prevent this, they went to work behind the scenes in their customary manner, arguing, threatening, bribing, bringing pressure to bear on one of their opponents at a time. They had already succeeded in arranging the replacement of several top generals by their own creatures, and Revolutionary Command saw the last chance disappearing of avoiding a full-scale exchange of nuclear missiles with government forces. So we decided to preempt. We struck first, but not at the government's forces. We fired all our missiles from Vandenberg, except for half a dozen targeted on New York, at two targets, Israel and the Soviet Union. As soon as our missiles had been launched, Revolutionary Command announced the news to the Pentagon by way of a direct telephone link. The Pentagon, of course, had immediate confirmation from its own radar screens, and it had no choice but to follow up our salvo with an immediate and full-scale nuclear attack of its own against the Soviet Union in an attempt to knock out as much of the Soviet retaliatory potential as possible. The Soviet response was horrendous, but spotty. They fired everything they had left at us, but it simply wasn't enough. Several of the largest American cities, including Washington and Chicago, were spared. What the organization accomplished by precipitating this fateful chain of events is fourfold. First, by hitting New York and Israel, we have completely knocked out two of world Jewry's principal nerve centers, and it should take them a while to establish a new chain of command and get their act back together. Second, by forcing them to take a decisive action, we pushed the balance of power in the U.S. government solidly back toward the military leaders. For all practical purposes, the country is now under a military government. Third, by provoking a Soviet counterattack, we did far more to disrupt the system in this country and break up the orderly pattern of life of the masses than we could have done by using our own weapons against domestic targets. And we still have most of our 60 kiloton warheads left. That will be of enormous advantage to us in the days ahead. Fourth, we have eliminated a major specter which had been hanging over our plans before. The specter of Soviet intervention after we and the system had fought it out with each other. We took an enormous chance, of course. First, that California would be devastated in the Soviet counterattack. And second, that the U.S. military would lose its cool and use its nuclear weaponry on California, even though, except for Vandenberg, there was no nuclear threat there to be knocked out. In both cases, the fortunes of war have been at least moderately kind to us, although the threat from the U.S. military is by no means over. What we lost, however, is substantial. About an eighth of the organization's members and nearly a fifth of the white population of the country not to mention an unknown number of millions of racial kinsmen in the Soviet Union. Fortunately, the heaviest death toll in this country has been in the largest cities, which are substantially non-white. All in all, the strategic situation of the organization relative to the system is enormously improved, and that is what really counts. 
We are willing to take as many casualties as necessary, just so the system takes proportionately more. All that matters in the long run is that when the smoke has finally cleared, the last battalion in the field is ours. Today, I finally located Bill and found out what happened back in the print shop during the evacuation. He has also suffered a grievous personal loss, and his story was brief but poignant. The evacuation of the expanded Pentagon security area had been carried out with no warning whatever. At about 11 in the morning of September 7th, tanks had suddenly appeared in the streets, and soldiers had begun knocking on all doors, giving occupants only 10 minutes to abandon their dwellings. They were very rough on anyone who did not move fast enough. Bill, Carol, and Catherine were running propaganda leaflets on the press when the tanks came, and they had just enough time to hide the incriminating evidence under a tarpaulin before four black soldiers pushed their way into the shop. Since the troops weren't taking time to search buildings, presumably everything would have gone smoothly at the shop had not one of the blacks made a suggestive remark to Catherine as she was hastily packing some of her clothing and other personal items. Catherine said nothing to the black, but the icy look she gave him apparently injured his sense of human dignity. He began the whining, What's the matter, baby? Don't you like black people? approach that blacks have found works wonders with guilt-ridden liberal white girls who are desperately afraid of being considered racists if they reject the unwelcome advances of rutting black butts. When Catherine tried to get out the shop door carrying two heavy suitcases, the amorous black blocked her way and tried to run his hand under her dress. She jumped back and gave the black a well-placed kick in the groin, which immediately cooled his ardor, but it was too late. He had felt Catherine's thigh holster. He shouted the warning to his companions, and both sides began shooting at the same time. While Catherine and Carol fired their pistols, Bill blazed away at the black soldiers with a sawed-off, auto-loading shotgun. All four blacks were mortally wounded, but not before they had in turn wounded each of the three whites. One of the blacks staggered out of the shop before he collapsed, and Bill, who was least seriously hit, had only a moment to ascertain that Catherine was beyond all help before he and Carol were forced to flee out the rear of the shop. They holed up in the attic of an adjoining building, and searchers were unable to find them. Carol soon became so weak from her wounds that she was unable to move, and Bill was not in much better condition. The night of the following day, he crept painfully from their hiding place and stealthily rounded up drinking water, food, and a few medical supplies from the empty buildings in the neighborhood before returning to his wife. Carol died on the fourth day, and it was another five days before Bill had regained sufficient strength to leave the attic again and make his way out of the security area. I know that Bill would never lie to me, and so I have at least the consolation of knowing that Catherine did not fall into the hands of the enemy alive. What I must do now is devote whatever time I have left to the task of ensuring that she has not died in vain. The next diary entry is dated October 28, 1993. Just back from more than a month in Baltimore, what's left of it, 
I and four others from here hauled a batch of portable radioactivity metering equipment up to Silver Spring, where we linked up with a Maryland unit and continued north to the vicinity of Baltimore. Since the main roads were totally impassable, we had to walk across country more than halfway, commandeering a truck for only the last dozen miles. Although more than two weeks had passed since the bombing, the state of affairs around Baltimore was almost indescribably chaotic when we arrived. We didn't even try to go into the burned-out core of the city, but even in the suburbs and countryside ten miles west of Ground Zero, half the buildings had burned. Even the secondary roads in and around the suburbs were littered with the burned hulks of vehicles, and nearly everyone we encountered was on foot. Groups of scavengers were everywhere, poking through ruined stores, foraging in the fields with backpacks, carrying bundles of looted or salvaged goods, mostly food, but also clothing, building materials, and everything else imaginable, to and fro like an army of ants. And the corpses. They were another good reason for staying away from the roads as much as possible. Even in the areas where relatively few people were killed by the initial blast or by subsequent radiation sickness, the corpses were strewn along the roads by the thousands. They were nearly all refugees from the blast area. Close to the city, one saw the bodies of those who had been badly burned by the fireball. Most of them had not been able to walk more than a mile or so before they collapsed. Further out were those who had been less seriously burned, and far out into the countryside were the corpses of those who had succumbed to radiation days or weeks later. All had been left to rot where they fell, except in those few areas where the military had restored a semblance of order. We had at that time only about 40 organization members among the survivors in the Baltimore area. They had been engaged in sabotage, sniping, and other guerrilla efforts against the police and military personnel there during the first week after the blast. Then they gradually discovered that the rules of the game had changed. They found out that it was no longer necessary to operate as furtively as they had before. The system's troops returned their fire when attacked, but did not pursue them. Outside a few areas, the police no longer attempted to undertake systematic searches of persons and vehicles, and there were no house raids. The attitude almost seemed to be, don't bother us and we won't bother you. The civilian survivors also tended to take a much more nearly neutral attitude than before. There was fear of the organization, but very little overt expression of hostility. The people did not know whether we were the ones who had fired the missile which destroyed their city, as the system broadcasts claimed, but they seemed about as disposed to blame the system for letting it happen as us for doing it. The Holocaust through which the people up there had passed had clearly convinced them quite thoroughly of one thing. The system could no longer guarantee their security. They no longer had even a trace of confidence in the old order. They merely wanted to survive now, and they would turn to anyone who could help them stay alive a while longer. Sensing this changed attitude, our members had begun recruiting and organizing among the survivors around Baltimore in semi-public fashion, and meeting with sufficient success that Revolutionary Command authorized the attempt 
to establish a small liberated zone west of the city. The 11 of us who had come up from the Washington suburbs to help pitched in with enthusiasm and within a few days we had established a reasonably defensible perimeter enclosing about 2,000 houses and other buildings with a total of nearly 12,000 occupants. My principal function was to carry out a radiological survey of the soil, the buildings, the local vegetation, and the water sources in the area so that we could be sure of freedom from dangerous levels of nuclear radiation resulting from fallout. We organized about 300 of the locals into a fairly effective militia and provided them with arms. It would be risky at this stage to try to arm a bigger militia than that because we haven't had an opportunity to ideologically condition the local population to the extent we had like, and they still require close observation and tight supervision. But we picked the best prospects among the able-bodied males in the enclave, and we do have quite a bit of experience in picking people. Context of white supremacy. First portion of Dr. William Pierce's The Turner Diaries. Same number as before 760 569 7676. And the code is 564-943-POUND. Number again, 760-569-7676. And the code is 564 Four nine four three pound. Uh, just press star six if you dial that line and you have a question. Um, yeah, dial that line uh, if you have a question, and I'll keep an eye out see if uh, folks have things that they would like to share. Um, while we. It was wild. I was listening to the broadcast, the audio book, and while that was playing, there was a television on. The television, it was uh, on the news. President Obama pops up on the screen, and they've got the uh, closed captioning on. So I'm paying attention, listening to the audio book, and I'm looking at the Closed captioning so I can at least, you know, kind of get a gist of what they're talking about. And it was uh, in Libya, Christopher Stevens, right? This is, they're still talking about this. This is one of the moments they were talking about from the debate. And uh, did President Obama, he lied to us or he misled us or they didn't have the correct information. Uh, we had a white man who died uh, and they didn't protect him didn't properly value white life, 
and then they misled us. Then they didn't tell us the right thing. They tried to say it was a, a protest and not an act of terrorism. Words. Real important, but that's what they were talking about. And then this moved to another non-white person, uh, Susan Rice. It's black female. Uh, she's the ambassador to the United Nations for the U.S. Uh, and now they're trying to say, well, it was her fault. She came out. She did an interview uh, a couple of days after uh, Chris, this white man, racist suspect, Christopher Stevens. Again, his online video game handle, Vile Rat. But uh, that she came out and she, she said it was a part of a protest and she didn't say it was an act of terrorism. Um, just real interesting that this shifted from President Obama, and they're still saying, you know, he's to blame, but now going after Susan Rice as well, another non-white person, uh, to try to blame them for this and all that. But so I'm seeing that on the screen while I'm listening to the Turner Diaries, and it just it was a good reminder for me, remaining serious, like this sounds really kooky, right? Blacker has said that before. He's called in. Uh, some of our other listeners, I think, uh, non Mighty Wick, when he dialed in, he was saying this is this is just outrageous. You know, this is like uh, <laughs> this is beyond the twilight zone. If you think there's going to be a time where white women can be raped and or sexually molested by black males, and if you say something about this or complain about this you will be labeled a racist. That is, I mean, that's beyond fiction. That's like a whole other universe, right? And so uh, for any period of time. And so it, I think for a lot of people, the tendency is to hear a book like this and to think, oh, this is just some foolishness. This is just goofy. Uh, you know, this is just a silly waste of time. And I would think that way too. And I, I mean, Truthfully, hearing a lot of it, it's just like, oh, my gosh, what are they talking about? He's imitating these Jewish voices and black people's voices. And, I mean, it's just like, come on. However, we started the broadcast off this week, Alex Jones. You heard him, and it was not just Alex Jones. He has a huge following. A lot of white people, a lot of non-white people are big followers of Alex Jones. What did you hear him saying? This is just the last two days. This is like big news today. I'm sure there's still articles. I think he even said he was going to be talking on his Sunday broadcast about these race riots. Haven't they? I feel like they've been saying that all year long. We've been saying this all year long. Alex Jones, I think he's been saying this all year long. Race riot. Back in April, I played the sound clip where he was talking about Trayvon Martin. And he said... Uh, it's going to be a riot. Al Sharpton and uh, Jesse Jackson, I think he was naming names, calling out different victims of racism, saying, see there, they're trying to stoke the racial flames, get some sort of riot kicked off. They were talking about the different white people, older white people who were beat up, remember, down in Alabama. They had another one that happened in Indiana. These were white men, I think, in their, like, 70s, these two incidents. Uh, where they said a gang of, of black people, uh, and one, I think the one in Indiana, it was white people and non-white people that beat up this old white guy in his 70s. They said they were doing it for Trayvon. 
all year long been hearing white people talk about this. I've been hearing this. These reports, some sort of riot, fabricated social disorder, Dr. Umar Mullah Johnson. I try to keep that try to keep that in mind so I don't drift off into just thinking, oh, this is just, you know, Dr. Pierce and his goofy book. Uh, you know, this is nothing that we should take uh seriously. No powerful white supremacist racist is going to, you know, go buy this book. This is not going to be their blueprint. But just little things like that, just paying attention and being attentive. I think I said two weeks ago, I have been seeing an increasing amount of white people labeling other white people as racist. And it reminded me of this book. It reminded me of exactly what Dr. Pierce has been saying, uh, an environment where white people even if it's just low-level white people, even if it's just less powerful white people who really feel like, hey, this environment is not cool. We're not doing the right thing for the white team, and uh, we're promoting a lot of things that I don't like, whether it's so-called Jews or somebody. We are not going along with the racist script the way I think it should be, and I think you're going to have an increasing amount of these low-level white people, less powerful white people, who are feeling exactly like Earl Turner and what Dr. William Pierce, Dr. Kevin McDonald, Alex Jones, you can just throw them all in together. I think the last time that we broadcasted, I started the program off with John Terry, the white guy in the U.K. This is worldwide. Uh, he just got in trouble. They banned him for four games. <laughs> We're saying that he made a, a racist comment. They didn't call him a racist. Make sure I'm clear about that. But uh, he had to go to. He had two different hearings. I think there was an official police trial where he was acquitted, and then after that, the governing soccer body, the governing football body, they had their own investigation, and they concluded that they were going to ban him for those four games worldwide. Like I said, I'm just I'm seeing a pattern of this where white people especially less powerful white people, feeling as though, hey, the niggas are taking over. Got this nigger in the White House, the nigger Susan Rice, ambassador to the U.N. The whole white world is shifting. Keep telling us all these reports about our fertility. I wrote a note of that, the constant focus, referencing of black genitals, they had the scene where they, he, I think he said they were walking and they came across the black youth and they were out urinating, right? <laughs> like he just happens to, I don't know, maybe that happens to you all. You're out walking and you come on a group of people urinating. That's never happened to me, but maybe maybe I'm just not in, you know, the spots where this is going down. Anyway, uh, but that, the scene that's closer to the end of the first segment where one of the black males, he immediately tries to rape Catherine. I think that's the second or third time that a black male has tried to rape Catherine as we've been rolling in the book. I remember way back, this is, I think, in, in the second maybe, first or second study session that we did, where some black male uh, allegedly was going to rape Catherine. And uh, in that session... Earl Turner, I remember, he straddles. That's the term that uh, Dr. Pierce uses. 
he straddles this black male after he knocks him on the ground, prone, and he gets a, I think the term he used was a primal enjoyment out of kicking this black male in the groin as hard as he possibly could. That is earlier in this, it's just constant black genitals, black rape, sex with black. That's one of the main crimes where they're going out and killing white people. That's been all throughout the book. You uh, race traitors sleeping, sleeping with black people where they've killed a lot of white people, males and females. I think they said it was more white women doing this, but both white men and white women uh, doing the uh, sexual sewering of non-white people, and they're upset about that. I will make sure that I get in as well. This could just be camouflage, right, where white people, we're talking about master deceivers. This could just be to camouflage their enjoyment and their goal of raping as many victims as possible. Make sure that I get that in as well. I did. I had a few more things, but I definitely want to check, see if anyone uh, has thoughts, nowhere just returning to the air. I know some people, I know a lot of people, I suspect, did not hear the uh, last broadcast that we did, so I'm sure there's a discontinuity. Uh, but if you have questions, comments, things you would like to share about the uh, the book, the number to dial, same as before, 760-569-569. 7676 and the code is 
uh, as kooky and as silly as this book is, and him imitating uh, so-called Jews and imitating, uh, I guess, at least what he thinks a black person would sound like or a non-white person. I think he does some so-called Latinos as well. As kooky as it is, I'm telling you, I am hearing realize that Alex Jones clip, if nothing else, if you hear, uh, heard the beginning of the program uh, with Alex Jones, and it's not just him, uh, the Drudge Report, I saw this on several sites. I think I posted uh, at least one of the links on my Facebook page uh, where white people were talking about black people are going to riot, and they had all these Twitter posts. It sounded so much like the Turner Diaries. To me, it sounded like uh, the Twitter posts I'm talking about, like a white person going online, and I'm going to write what I think or the way that I the way I think a black person, right? My racist view of how black people would talk if they got online and they were going to write or talk about rioting uh, if President Obama loses, right? I mean, and it's just absurd. That's what I mean about staying informed. It is absurd, and it reminds me of the Turner Diaries, even in its absurdity. I don't know if folks remember this segment. It's, uh, I think, from the fifth study session that we did where one of the strategies that they're going to use is we're going to put out a radio signal where we're going to pretend to be black people and we're going to encourage the black people to attack white people. We're going to encourage them to say, yeah, they're being racist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Get the man. Right on. So I, I hope people remember. If you don't remember, you can go back in the archives. Uh, I will make sure all of the archives are available. Um, arduous task, but working on that as well now that I have my computer back. Um, but it's in the archives. It's right there in the book. If you Even if you just go back and, and flip through the Turner Diaries or if you get access to the audio book, it's right there where they talk about that. And I feel like they're talking about that right now. It is as, as zany as it sounds, as foolish and silly as it is. And in my view, that is because in the system of white supremacy, even the low-level white people, even the less powerful white people, these folks are still white. They are still members of the most powerful army in the universe. And they can do a lot of damage. Ain't just getting them galvanized, getting them focused, right? You hear Kevin McDonald talking about that all the time, that white people uh, are not focused. They don't have white, the goal of white solidarity um, and that, you know, we need to get that focus back. Just getting, creating an environment where you'll have more and more white people. They were talking about affirmative action the whole time. <laughs> we were out. I was wigging out around the affirmative action um, articles and things. We talk about that tomorrow, but I just see a lot of things that remind me of this book and some of the things that they're doing, even the segment that we were listening to today where they're talking about this nuclear strike. I was just thinking this is this is absurd and it's so silly, but if a black person or a non-white person wrote something like this, I could, man, I could see white people responding in a totally different manner. I seriously doubt you would be able to access this book or a book like this if a non-white person had wrote something like this in your public library. You can get this book at the public library, at least you can here, uh, Washington State. My library, they, they got it. You can get Turner Diaries, no problem. Um, all right, I'm checking, not seeing any hands uh, from folks thus far, folks that are just listening in, looks like. Uh, if you're on, again, if you're on the 760 line, 760-569-7676, code is 564-943-POUND, uh, star six, 
Press star six if you have questions. Not seeing any hands at this point. Folks are just listening, uh, getting back in. Folks maybe even trying to remember what was happening uh, with the story. I know it's been a while since we were uh, listening, but uh, I like finishing things. I hate, hate, hate reading a book and not finishing, so definitely wanted to wrap things up with this. Um, we will go ahead and do the second segment. So take notes if you uh, didn't write down anything or what have you. Take notes. We'll go ahead and do the second segment, wrap things up. I'll give my concluding thoughts on the book, and then if you have anything you want to share, you have an opportunity to do so. We'll go ahead and play the second segment, and uh, we will pick up, hopefully, listeners, uh, once this is done. Dr. William Pierce, The Turner Diaries, Context of White Supremacy. I'll not be surprised if half our new militiamen eventually graduate to membership in the organization, and some will probably even be admitted to the order. Yes, I think that by and large we can count on our new recruits. There's still a great deal of basically sound human material left in this country, despite the widespread moral corruption. After all, that corruption has been produced largely by the instilling of an alien ideology and an alien set of values in a people disoriented by an unnatural and spiritually unhealthy lifestyle. The hell they're going through now is at least knocking some of the foolishness out of them and leaving them quite a bit more receptive to a correct worldview than they were before. Our first task was to weed out and eliminate the alien elements and the race criminals from the new enclave. It's astounding how many dark, kinky-haired Middle Easterners have invaded this country in the last decade. I believe they've taken over every restaurant and hot dog stand in Maryland. We must have shot at least a dozen Iranians just in our little suburban enclave, and twice that many escaped when they realized what was happening. Then we formed the people into labor brigades to carry out a number of necessary functions, one of which was the sanitary disposal of the hundreds of corpses of refugees. The majority of these poor creatures were white, and I overheard one of our members refer to what happened to them as a slaughter of the innocents. I'm not sure that is a correct description of the recent Holocaust. I am sorry, of course, for the millions of white people both here and in Russia who died and who have yet to die before we are finished in this war to rid ourselves of the Jewish yoke. But innocence? I think not. Certainly, that term should not be applied to the majority of the adults. After all, is not man essentially responsible for his condition, at least in a collective sense? If the white nations of the world had not allowed themselves to become subject to the Jew, to Jewish ideas, to the Jewish spirit. This war would not be necessary. We can hardly consider ourselves blameless. We can hardly say we had no choice, no chance to avoid the Jews' snare. We can hardly say we were not warned. Men of wisdom, integrity, and courage have warned us over and over again of the consequences of our folly. And even after we were well down the Jewish primrose path, we had chance after chance to save ourselves. 
most recently 52 years ago, when the Germans and the Jews were locked in struggle for the mastery of Central and Eastern Europe. We ended up on the Jewish side in that struggle, primarily because we had chosen corrupt men as our leaders. And we had chosen corrupt leaders because we valued the wrong things in life. We had chosen leaders who promised us something for nothing, who pandered to our weaknesses and vices, who had nice stage personalities and pleasant smiles, but who were without character or scruple. We ignored the really important issues in our national life and gave free reign to a criminal system to conduct the affairs of our nation as it saw fit, so long as it kept us moderately well supplied with bread and circuses. And are not folly, willful ignorance, laziness, greed, irresponsibility, and moral timidity as blameworthy as the most deliberate malice? Are not all our sins of omission to be counted against us as heavily as the Jews' sins of commission against him? In the Creator's account book, that is the way things are reckoned. Nature does not accept good excuses in lieu of performance. No race which neglects to ensure its own survival when the means for that survival are at hand can be judged innocent, nor can the penalty exacted against it be considered unjust, no matter how severe. Immediately after our success in California this summer, in my dealings with the civilian population there, I had it thoroughly impressed on me why the American people do not deserve to be considered innocents. Their reaction to the civil strife there was based almost solely on the way it affected their own private circumstances. For the first day or two, before it dawned on most people that we might actually win, the white civilians, even racially conscious ones, were generally hostile. We were messing up their lifestyle and making their customary pursuit of pleasure terribly inconvenient. Then, after they learned to fear us, they were all too eager to please us. But they weren't really interested in the rights and wrongs of the struggle. They couldn't be bothered with soul-searching and long-range considerations. Their attitude was, just tell us what we're supposed to believe and we'll believe it. They just wanted to be safe and comfortable again as soon as possible. And they weren't being cynical. They weren't jaded sophisticates, but ordinary people. The fact is that the ordinary people are not really much less culpable than the not-so-ordinary people, than the pillars of the system. Take the political police as an example. Most of them, the white ones, are not especially evil men. They serve evil masters, but they rationalize what they do. They justify it to themselves, some in patriotic terms, protecting our free and democratic way of life, and some in religious or ideological terms, upholding Christian ideals of equality and justice. One can call them hypocrites. One can point out that they deliberately avoid thinking about anything which might call into question the validity of the shallow catchphrases with which they justify themselves. But is not everyone who has tolerated the system also a hypocrite, whether he actively supported it or not? 
Is not everyone who mindlessly parrots the same catchphrases, refusing to examine their implications and contradictions, whether he uses them as justifications for his deeds or not, also to be blamed? I cannot think of any segment of white society, from the Maryland rednecks and their families whose radioactive bodies we bulldozed into a huge pit a few days ago, to the university professors we strung up in Los Angeles last July, which can truly claim that it did not deserve what happened to it. It was not so many months ago that nearly all those who are wandering homeless and bemoaning their fate today were talking from the other side of their mouths. Not a few of our people have been badly roughed up in the past, and two that I know of were killed when they fell into the hands of rednecks, good old boys who, although not liberals or Shabbos Goyim in any way, had no use for radicals who wanted to overthrow the government. In their case, it was sheer ignorance. But ignorance of that sort is no more excusable than the bleating, sheep-like liberalism of the pseudo-intellectuals who have smugly promoted Jewish ideology for so many years, or than the selfishness and cowardice of the great American middle class who went along for the ride, complaining only when their pocketbooks suffered. No, talk of innocence has no meaning. We must look at our situation collectively in a race-wide sense. We must understand that our race is like a cancer patient undergoing drastic surgery in order to save his life. There is no sense in asking whether the tissue being cut out now is innocent or not. That is no more reasonable than trying to distinguish the good Jews from the bad ones, or as some of our thicker-skulled good old boys still insist on trying, separating the good niggers from the rest of their race. The fact is that we are all responsible as individuals for the morals and the behavior of our race as a whole. There is no evading that responsibility in the long run any more for the members of our own race than for those of other races. And each of us individually must be prepared to be called to account for that responsibility at any time. In these days, many are being called. But the enemy is also paying a price. He's still got a grip on things here, more or less, but he's just about finished outside North America. Although the government is blocking most of the foreign news from the networks here, we've been receiving clandestine reports from our overseas units and also monitoring the European news broadcasts. Within 24 hours after we hit Tel Aviv and half a dozen other Israeli targets last month, hundreds of thousands of Arabs were swarming across the borders of occupied Palestine. Most of them were civilians, armed only with knives or clubs, and Jewish border guards mowed down thousands of them until their ammunition was exhausted. The Arabs' hatred, pent up for 45 years, drove them on, across minefields, through Jewish machine gun fire, and into the radioactive chaos of burning cities, their single thought being to slay the people who had stolen their land, killed their fathers, and humiliated them for two generations. Within a week, the throat of the last Jewish survivor in the last kibbutz and in the last smoking ruin of Tel Aviv had been cut. News from the Soviet Union is very scanty, but the reports are that the Russian survivors 
have dealt with the Jews there in much the same way. In the ruins of Moscow and Leningrad during the first few days, the people rounded up all the Jews they could get their hands on and hurled them into burning buildings or onto burning heaps of debris. And anti-Jewish riots have broken out in London, Paris, Brussels, Rotterdam, Bucharest, Buenos Aires, Johannesburg, and Sydney. The governments of France and the Netherlands, both rotten to the core with Jewish corruption, have fallen and the people are settling scores in the towns and villages throughout those countries. It's the sort of thing which happened time after time during the Middle Ages, of course. Every time the people had finally had their fill of the Jews and their tricks. Unfortunately, they never finished the job, and they won't this time either. I'm sure the Jews are already making their plans for a comeback as soon as the people have calmed down and forgotten. The people have such short memories, but we won't forget. That alone is enough to ensure that history will not repeat itself. No matter how long it takes us, and no matter to what lengths we must go, we'll demand a final settlement of the account between our two races. If the organization survives this contest, no Jew will anywhere. We'll go to the uttermost ends of the earth to hunt down the last of Satan's spawn. The organizational principles we are using in Maryland are a bit different from those used in California because the situations are different. Here, unlike Southern California, there are neither natural geographical barriers nor a ring of government troops to separate our enclave from its surroundings. Of course, we did what we could to make up for this lack. We chose a perimeter in the first place which follows natural gaps in the pattern of man-made structures, although for nearly half a mile the gap is only the hundred-yard width of a highway right-of-way, with the systems troops controlling the other side. We plugged some open areas with barbed wire and mines, and we torched buildings and brush outside the enclave which might provide concealment or cover for snipers or hostile troop concentrations. But if the people in our enclave want to leave, there is really no way our militia can stop more than a few of them. We are depending on three things, much more than the fear of being shot, to hold them. First, we have given the people order, and we are doing a substantially better job of maintaining the order inside our enclave than the government is doing outside it. After the dose of chaos these people have swallowed, all but the most brainwashed, do-your-own-thing types are hungry for authority and discipline. Second, we are well on the way to establishing a subsistence economy in the enclave. We have a large water storage tank, which we should be able to keep full just by pumping groundwater from already existing wells. There are two substantially intact food warehouses and a nearly full grain silo, and there are four working farms, including one dairy farm, with almost enough production capacity to feed half our people. We're making up our present food deficit by raiding outside the enclave, but by the time we've put everyone to work converting every arable patch of ground to vegetable gardens, that shouldn't be necessary. Last, and perhaps not least, 
Everyone in the enclave is indisputably white. We dealt summarily with every questionable case, while outside it is the usual god-awful assortment of whites, mostly whites, half-whites, gypsies, Chicanos, Puerto Ricans, Jews, blacks, Orientals, Arabs, Persians, and everything else under the sun, the typical cosmopolitan racial goulash one finds in every American metropolitan area these days. Anyone who feels a need for a little brotherhood, Jewish style, can leave our enclave. I doubt that many will feel the need. The next diary entry is dated November 2nd. We had a long meeting this afternoon at which we were briefed on the latest national developments and given new priorities for our local action program. There has been remarkably little change in the national situation during the past six weeks. The government has been able to do very little to restore order in the devastated areas or to compensate for the damage done to the nation's transportation network, its power generating and distribution facilities, and the other essential components of the national economy. The people are being left on their own to a very large extent, while the system grapples with its own problems, not the least of which is its renewed uncertainty over the reliability of its military forces. That lack of change is in itself very encouraging, because it means that the system is not recovering the degree of control over the country which it exercised prior to September 8th. The government has simply not been able to cope with the chaotic conditions which now prevail throughout wide areas. Our units have been doing everything they can in the way of sabotage, of course, just for the purpose of keeping things destabilized. But Revolutionary Command has apparently been waiting to see what sort of intermediate-term situation would gel before deciding the next phase of the organization's strategy. The decision has now been made, and it is for us to begin doing in many other places the sort of thing we did in Maryland last month. We will be shifting a large part of the emphasis of our struggle from guerrilla actions to public and semi-public organizing. That is exciting news. It means a new escalation of our offensive, an escalation which is only being undertaken because of our confidence that the tide of battle is now running in our favor. But the old phase of the fight is by no means over, and one of the most worrisome dangers we are facing is a large-scale military assault on California. Government forces are now undergoing a rapid buildup in the Southern California area, and an invasion of the liberated zone seems imminent. If the system succeeds in California, then it will certainly move similarly against Baltimore and any other enclaves we may establish in the future, despite our threats of nuclear retaliation. The problem seems to be a clique of conservative generals in the Pentagon who see us more as a threat to their own authority than to the system itself. They have no love for the Jews and are not particularly unhappy with the present state of affairs in which they are the de facto rulers of the country. What they would like is to permanently institutionalize the present state of martial law and then gradually restore order, bringing about a new status quo based on their rather reactionary and short-sighted ideas. We, of course, are the fly in their ointment, 
and they are moving to squash us. What makes them especially dangerous to us is that they are not as afraid of our nuclear reprisal capability as their predecessors were. They know we can destroy more cities and kill a lot more civilians, but they don't think we can kill them. I conferred privately with Major Williams of Washington Field Command for more than an hour on the problem of attacking the Pentagon. The military's other major command centers were either knocked out on September 8th or subsequently consolidated with the Pentagon, which the top brass apparently regard as impregnable. And it damn near is. We went over every possibility we could think of, and we came up with no really convincing plan, except perhaps one. That is to make an air delivery of a bomb. In the massive ring of defenses around the Pentagon, there is a great deal of anti-aircraft firepower, but we decided that a small plane flying just above the ground might be able to get through the three-mile gauntlet with one of our 60-kiloton warheads. One factor in favor of such an attempt is that we have never before used aircraft in such a way, and we might hope to catch the anti-aircraft crews off their guard. Although the military is guarding all civil airfields, it just happens that we have an old crop duster stashed in a barn only a few miles from here. My immediate assignment is to prepare a detailed plan for an aerial attack on the Pentagon by next Monday. We must make a final decision at that time and then act without further delay. The next and the final entry in Earl Turner's diaries is dated November 9th, 1993. It's still three hours until first light, and all systems are go. I'll use the time to write a few pages, my last diary entry. Then it's a one-way trip to the Pentagon for me. The warhead is strapped into the front seat of the old steerman and rigged to detonate either on impact or when I flip a switch in the back seat. Hopefully, I'll be able to manage a low-level air burst directly over the center of the Pentagon. Failing that, I'll at least try to fly as close as I can before I'm shot down. It's been more than four years since I've flown, but I've thoroughly familiarized myself with the Stearman cockpit and been briefed on the plane's peculiarities. I don't anticipate any piloting problems. The barn hangar here is only eight miles from the Pentagon. We'll thoroughly warm up the engine in the barn and when the door is opened, I'll go like a bat out of hell, straight for the Pentagon, at an altitude of about 50 feet. By the time I hit the defensive perimeter, I should be making about 150 miles an hour, and it'll take me just under another 70 seconds to reach the target. Two-thirds of the troops around the Pentagon are niggers, which should greatly boost my chances of getting through. The sky should still be heavily overcast, and there'll be just enough light for me to make out my landmarks. We've painted the plane to be as nearly invisible as possible under the anticipated flying conditions, and I'll be too low for a radar-controlled fire. Considering everything, I believe my chances are excellent. I regret that I won't be around to participate in the final success of our revolution, but I'm happy that I've been allowed to do as much as I have. It is a comforting thought in these last hours of my physical existence that of all the billions of men and women of my race who have ever lived, 
I will have been able to play a more vital role than all but a handful of them in determining the ultimate destiny of mankind. What I will do today will be of more weight in the annals of the race than all the conquests of Caesar and Napoleon, if I succeed. And succeed I must, or the entire revolution will be in the gravest danger. Revolutionary Command estimates that the system will launch its invasion against California within the next 48 hours. Once the order is issued from the Pentagon, we will be unable to halt the invasion. And if my mission today fails, there will not be enough time for us to try something else. Monday night, after we had made the final decision on this mission, I underwent the right of union. Actually, I have been undergoing the right for the past 30 hours, and it will not be complete for another three. Only in the moment of my death will I achieve full membership in the order. To many, that may seem a gloomy prospect, I suppose, but not to me. I have known what was ahead of me since my trial last March, and I am grateful that my probationary period has been cut short by five months partly because of the present crisis and partly because my performance since March has been considered exemplary. The ceremony Monday was more moving and beautiful than I could have imagined it would be. More than 200 of us assembled in the cellar of the Georgetown gift shop from which the partitions and stacked crates had been removed to make room for us. 30 new probationary members were sworn into the order and 18 others, including me, participated in the right of union. I alone, however, was singled out because of my unique status. When Major Williams summoned me, I stepped forward and then turned to face the silent sea of robed figures. What a contrast with the tiny gathering only two years earlier, when seven of us met upstairs for my initiation. The order, even with its extraordinary standards, is growing with astonishing rapidity. Knowing fully what was demanded in character and commitment of each man who stood before me, my chest swelled with pride. These were no soft-bellied, conservative businessmen assembled for some Masonic mumbo-jumbo, no loud-mouthed, beery rednecks letting off a little ritualized steam about the goddamn niggers, no pious, frightened churchgoers whining for the guidance or protection of some anthropomorphic deity. These were real men, white men, men who were now one with me in spirit and consciousness as well as in blood. As the torchlight flickered over the coarse gray robes of the motionless throng, I thought to myself, these men are the best my race has produced in this generation and they are as good as have been produced in any generation. In them are combined fiery passion and icy discipline, deep intelligence and instant readiness for action, a strong sense of self-worth and a total commitment to our common cause. On them hang the hopes of everything that will ever be. They are the vanguard of the coming new era, the pioneers who will lead our race out of its present depths and toward the unexplored heights above, and I am one with them. Then I made my brief declaration. 
Brothers, two years ago, when I entered your ranks for the first time, I consecrated my life to our order and to the purpose for which it exists. But then I faltered in the fulfillment of my obligation to you. Now I am ready to meet my obligation fully. I offer you my life. Do you accept it? In a rumbling unison, their reply came back. Brother, we accept your life. In return, we offer you everlasting life in us. Your deed shall not be in vain, nor shall it be forgotten until the end of time. To this commitment, we pledge our lives. I know, as certainly as it is possible for a man to know anything, that the order will not fail me if I do not fail it. The order has a life which is more than the sum of the lives of its members. When it speaks collectively, as it did Monday, something deeper and older and wiser than any of us speaks, something which cannot die, of that deeper life I am now about to partake. Of course, I would have liked to have children by Catherine so that I could also have immortality of another sort, but that is not to be. I am satisfied. They've been warming up the engine for about 10 minutes now, and Bill is signaling to me that it's time to go. The rest of the crew has already taken cover in the blast shelter we dug under the barn floor. I will now entrust my diary to Bill, and he will later put it in the hiding place with the other volumes. What follows now is an epilogue. Andrew MacDonald writes, Thus end Earl Turner's diaries, as unpretentiously as they began. His final mission was successful, of course, as we all are reminded each year on November 9th, our traditional Day of the Martyrs. With the system's principal military nerve center destroyed, the system's forces poised outside the organization's California enclave continued to wait for orders which never came. Declining morale, soaring desertions, growing black indiscipline, and finally the inability of the system to maintain the integrity of its supply line to its California troops resulted in the gradual erosion of the threat of invasion. Eventually, the system began regrouping its forces elsewhere to meet new challenges in other parts of the country. And then, just as the Jews had feared, the flow of organization activists turned exactly 180 degrees from what it had been in the weeks and months immediately prior to July 4, 1993. From scores of training camps in the liberated zone, first hundreds, then thousands of highly motivated guerrilla fighters began slipping through the system's diminishing ring of troops and moving eastward. With these guerrilla forces, the organization followed the example of its Baltimore members and rapidly established dozens of new enclaves, primarily in the nuclear-devastated areas where system authority was weakest. The Detroit enclave was initially the most important of these. Bloody anarchy had reigned among the survivors in the Detroit area for several weeks after the nuclear blasts of September 8th. Eventually, a semblance of order had been restored, with system troops loosely sharing power 
with the leaders of a number of black gangs in the area. Although there were a few isolated white strongholds which kept the roving mobs of black plunderers and rapists at bay, most of the disorganized and demoralized white survivors in and around Detroit offered no effective resistance to the blacks, and just as in the other heavily black areas of the country, they suffered terribly. Then, in mid-December, the organization seized the initiative. A number of synchronized lightning raids on the system's military strong points in the Detroit area resulted in an easy victory. The organization then established certain patterns in Detroit, which were soon followed elsewhere. All captured white troops, as soon as they had laid down their weapons, were offered a chance to fight with the organization against the system. Those who immediately volunteered were taken aside for preliminary screening and then sent to camps for indoctrination and special training. The others were machine gunned on the spot without further ado. The same degree of ruthlessness was used in dealing with the white civilian population. When the organization's cadres moved into the white strongholds in the Detroit suburbs, the first thing they found it necessary to do was to liquidate most of the local white leaders in order to establish the unquestioned authority of the organization. There was no time or patience for trying to reason with short-sighted whites who insisted that they weren't racists or revolutionaries and didn't need the help of any outside agitators in dealing with their problems or who had some other conservative or parochial fixation. The whites of Detroit and the other new enclaves were organized more along the lines described by Earl Turner for Baltimore than for California, but even more rapidly and roughly. In most areas of the country, there was no opportunity for an orderly, large-scale separation of non-whites, as in California. And consequently, a bloody race war raged for months, taking a terrible toll of those whites who were not in one of the organization's tightly controlled all-white enclaves. Food became critically scarce everywhere during the winter of 1993-94. The blacks lapsed into cannibalism, just as they had in California, while hundreds of thousands of starving whites, who earlier had ignored the organization's call for a rising against the system, began appearing at the borders of the various liberated zones begging for food. The organization was only able to feed the white populations already under its control by imposing the severest rationing, and it was necessary to turn many of the latecomers away. Those who were admitted, and that meant only children, women of childbearing age, and able-bodied men willing to fight in the organization's ranks, were subjected to much more severe racial screening than had been used to separate whites from non-whites in California. It was no longer sufficient to be merely white. In order to eat, one had to be judged the bearer of especially valuable genes. In Detroit, the practice was first established, and it was later adopted elsewhere, of providing any able-bodied white male who sought admittance to the organization's enclave with one hot meal and a bayonet or other edged weapon. His forehead was then marked with an indelible dye, and he was turned out and could be readmitted permanently only by bringing back the head of a freshly killed black or other non-white.
This practice assured that precious food would not be wasted on those who would not or could not add to the organization's fighting strength. But it took a terrible toll of the weaker and more decadent white elements. Tens of millions perished during the first half of 1994, and the total white population of the country reached a low point of approximately 50 million by August of that year. By then, however, nearly half the remaining whites were in organization enclaves, and food production and distribution in the enclaves had grown until it was barely sufficient to prevent further losses from starvation. Although a central government of sorts still existed, the systems military and police forces were, for all practical purposes, reduced to a number of essentially autonomous local commands whose principal activity became looting for food, liquor, gasoline, and women. Both the organization and the system avoided large-scale encounters with each other, the organization confining itself to short, intense raids on system troop concentrations and other facilities, and the systems forces confining themselves to guarding their sources of supply and in some areas to attempting to limit the further expansion of the organization's enclaves. But the organization's enclaves continued to expand nevertheless, both in size and number, all through the five dark years preceding the new era. At one time, there were nearly 2,000 separate organization enclaves in North America. Outside these zones of order and security, the anarchy and savagery grew steadily worse, with the only real authority wielded by marauding bands which preyed on each other and on the unorganized and defenseless masses. Many of these bands were composed of blacks, Puerto Ricans, Chicanos, and half-white mongrels. In growing numbers, however, whites also formed bands along racial lines, even without organization guidance. As the war of extermination wore on, millions of soft, city-bred, brainwashed whites gradually began regaining their manhood. The rest died. The organization's growing success was not without its setbacks, of course. One of the most notable of these was the terrible Pittsburgh Massacre of June 1994. The organization had established an enclave there in May of that year, forcing the retreat of local system forces but it did not act swiftly enough in identifying and liquidating the local Jewish element. A number of Jews, in collaboration with white conservatives and liberals, had time to work out a plan of subversion. The consequence was that system troops, aided by their fifth column inside the enclave, recaptured Pittsburgh. The Jews and blacks then went on a wild rampage of mass murder, reminiscent of the worst excesses of the Jew-instigated Bolshevik Revolution in Russia 75 years earlier. By the time the blood orgy ended, virtually every white in the area had either been butchered or forced to flee. The surviving staff members of the organization's Pittsburgh Field Command, whose hesitation in dealing with the Jews had brought on the catastrophe, were rounded up and shot by a special disciplinary squad acting on orders from Revolutionary Command. The only time after November 9, 1993, the organization was forced to detonate a nuclear weapon on the North American continent was a year later in Toronto. 
Hundreds of thousands of Jews had fled the United States to that Canadian city during 1993 and 1994, making almost a second New York of it and using it as their command center for the war raging to the south. So far as both the Jews and the organization were concerned, the U.S.-Canadian border had no real significance during the later stages of the Great Revolution, and by mid-1994, conditions were only slightly less chaotic north of the border than south of it. Throughout the dark years, neither the organization nor the system could hope for a completely decisive advantage over the other, so long as they both retained the capability for nuclear warfare. During the first part of this period, when the system's conventional military strength greatly exceeded the organization's, only the organization's threat of retaliation with its more than 100 nuclear warheads hidden inside the major population centers still under system control kept the system, in most cases, from moving against the organization's liberated zones. Later, when organizational gains, together with growing attrition of the system's forces through desertions, tilted the balance of conventional strength toward the organization, the system retained control over a number of military units armed with nuclear weapons, and by threatening to use these, forced the organization to leave certain system strongholds inviolate. Even the system's elite pampered nuclear troops were not immune to the processes of attrition which sapped the system's conventional strength, however, and they could postpone the inevitable only temporarily. On January 30th, 1999, in the momentous Truce of Omaha, the last group of system generals surrendered their commands to the organization in return for a pledge that they and their immediate families would be allowed to live out the remainders of their lives unmolested. The organization kept its pledge, and a special reservation on an island off the California coast was set aside for the generals. Then, of course, came the mopping up period, when the last of the non-white bands were hunted down and exterminated, followed by the final purge of undesirable racial elements among the remaining white population. From the liberation of North America until the beginning of the new era for our whole planet, there elapsed the remarkably short time of just under 11 months. Professor Anderson has recorded and analyzed the events of this climactic period in detail in his History of the Great Revolution. Here it is sufficient to note that, with the principal centers of world Jewish power annihilated and the nuclear threat of the Soviet Union neutralized, the most important obstacles to the organization's worldwide victory were out of the way. From as early as 1993, the organization had had active cells in Western Europe, and they grew with extraordinary rapidity in the six years preceding the victory in North America. Liberalism had taken its toll in Europe, just as in America, and the old order in most places was a rotted-out shell with only a surface semblance of strength. The disastrous economic collapse in Europe in the spring of 1999, following the demise of the system in North America, greatly helped in preparing the European masses morally for the organization's final takeover. That takeover came in a great Europe-wide rush 
in the summer and fall of 1999 as a cleansing hurricane of change swept over the continent, clearing away in a few months the refuse of a millennium or more of alien ideology and a century or more of profound moral and material decadence. The blood flowed ankle deep in the streets of many of Europe's great cities momentarily as the race traders, the offspring of generations of dysgenic breeding and hordes of gastarbeiter met a common fate. Then the great dawn of the new era broke over the Western world. The single remaining power center on Earth not under organizational control by early December 1999 was China. The organization was willing to postpone the solution of the Chinese problem for several years, but the Chinese themselves forced the organization to take immediate and drastic action. The Chinese, of course, had invaded the Asiatic regions of the Soviet Union immediately after the nuclear strike of September 8, 1993. But until the fall of 1999, they had remained east of the Urals, consolidating the vast new conquered territory. When, during the summer and early fall of 1999, one European nation after another was liberated by the organization, the Chinese decided to make a grab for European Russia. The organization countered this move massively, using nuclear missiles to knock out the still primitive Chinese missile and strategic bomber capabilities, as well as hitting a number of new Chinese troop concentrations west of the Urals. Unfortunately, this action did not stem the yellow tide flowing north and west from China. The organization still required time to reorganize and reorient the European populations newly under its control before it could hope to deal in a conventional manner with the enormous numbers of Chinese infantry pouring across the Urals into Europe. All its dependable troops at that time were hardly sufficient even for garrison duty in the newly liberated and still not entirely pacified areas of Eastern and Southern Europe. Therefore, the organization resorted to a combination of chemical, biological, and radiological means on an enormous scale to deal with the problem. Over a period of four years, some 16 million square miles of the Earth's surface, from the Ural Mountains to the Pacific, and from the Arctic Ocean to the Indian Ocean, were effectively sterilized. Thus was the great eastern waste created. Only in the last decade have certain areas of the waste been declared safe for colonization. Even so, they are safe only in the sense that the poisons sowed there a century ago have abated to the point that they are no longer a hazard to life. As everyone is aware, the bands of mutants which roam the waste remain a real threat, and it may be another century before the last of them has been eliminated and white colonization has once again established a human presence throughout this vast area. But it was in the year 1999, according to the chronology of the old era, just 110 years after the birth of the Great One, that the dream of a white world finally became a certainty. And it was the sacrifice of the lives of uncounted thousands of brave men and women of the organization during the preceding years which had kept that dream alive until its realization could no longer be denied. 
Among those uncounted thousands, Earl Turner played no small part. He gained immortality for himself on that dark November day 106 years ago when he faithfully fulfilled his obligation to his race, to the organization, and to the holy order which had accepted him into its ranks. And in so doing, he helped greatly to assure that his race would survive and prosper, that the organization would achieve its worldwide political and military goals, and that the order would spread its wise and benevolent rule over the earth for all time to come. Connecting my uh, connecting myself here on the uh, free HD line. Wow. Context of white supremacy. That is the conclusion of Dr. William Pierce's The Turner Diaries. Wow. All I can do is is repeat again. Um, for I know quite a few folks. This is not the bluest eye. I think we have had the privilege, this is I think the third book that we've been kind of doing our weekly study session on. Uh, this is the third book. Uh, we had the pleasure and privilege of doing Toni Morrison's The Bluest Eye. We also did Dr. Marimba Ani's uh, Urugu. This is neither one of those. <laughs> in, terms, in terms of... Uh, the quality of the writing uh, and, uh, in my opinion, uh, in terms of just the overall content, uh, this doesn't measure up uh, to either of those two texts. But I do think this is important. I'm glad we had the opportunity, uh, even though it took a little longer uh, with the uh, hiatus in between, but I'm glad we had the opportunity to study this book, uh, even in the conclusion. I was saying, as far-fetched and outlandish as this whole novel has been, even at the end where they get to the yellow peril, and all China, those sneaky Asians trying to do something, it, as I said, if you just if you've been paying attention, that was a big part of the presidential debate uh, this week. Uh, Governor Romney talking about China did not plan fair. He said that, he said that when he was wrapping up uh, at the debate uh, that he would uh, accuse China of being uh, currency manipulators uh, and that their unjust practices were harming hardworking Americans right here. That was a big part of his uh, complaint from uh the debates this week, and, and I mean, that's not even new. White people have been making their complaints about China for a long time. So in my opinion, and again, keep in mind, this book was published 1978. White people, patterns of behavior, very similar patterns of behavior. Uh, I will give out the address, uh, or excuse me, the number one more time, one more time, uh, the number to dial 
569-569-7676, and the code is 564-943-POUND. Press star 6 if you dial that line, if you have questions, comments, uh, anything you want to get in, our concluding session on the Turner Diaries. Uh, I'd kind of been saying all along uh, for people, if you're listening, if if you hear anything that sounds similar to uh, or reminds you of Nat Turner, if you think there might have been some symbolism, him uh, naming uh, the main character, Earl Turner, uh, the Turner Diaries, if you think somehow that might have been connected to Nat Turner, I, that was something I'd ask folks to think about. Uh, there are obvious some similarities, um, some, um, I, I don't know, that de- that definitely is one uh, to think on, uh, if that influenced him, if anybody can find uh, any material, if he talked about this, if people asked him about this, if uh, someone, some other folks have done some pondering uh, to see if there's a connection, uh, definitely share that, would like to know. Uh, as I said also, one of the things that I wanted to keep in mind while reading uh, the role of white women. I was very curious to, to see what Dr. Pierce's worldview is with regards to what white women are supposed to be doing. And he didn't, at least to me, you all can let me know, it didn't to me seem as though he went into as much detail uh, with regards to white women. Uh, it seemed very clear they're not supposed to be having sexual intercourse with non-white people like that clearly what they're supposed to be doing. But uh, if I had to point to one moment, I would say Elsa. Uh, I think I had been talking about that earlier. That's like the middle of the book, maybe third study session that we did, where uh, Elsa, this white woman, uh, I think she may be a teenager, and uh, she was going to a school with mostly black people. And of course, the black people were trying to rape her, and uh, she went to tell her parents this, and they didn't resolve the situation. In fact, they uh, accused her. I think her mom smacks her in the face and accuses her of being a racist. Uh, So if anything, I would say that moment right there, uh, I think, gives you some indication of his view that white women are supposed to be uh, loyal to the white race and they're supposed to be instructing their offspring how they should function, racist man, racist woman of the next generation. I think that moment kind of came through, at least to me, uh, very clear about one of the key roles that white women have uh, in the maintenance of the system of white supremacy, but also Catherine. I think just her being there, she's a part of the movement, and he goes into some detail about how she came to join the movement. I think she had said that she didn't consider herself as being political until, of course, black rapist uh, murdered uh, her white friend, and that, you know, that was her wake-up call. Hey, got to be on the grind practicing racism, white supremacy. This is serious. I got to be involved. Um, yeah, if you all have any thoughts you want to share, definitely dial in. I'm checking the switchboard again. Star six. If you have any questions, comments, anything you want to get in uh, on the book before we uh, wrap up with the Turner Diaries. Uh, some of the things that I, I noted as well. Second half and just kind of general uh, thoughts. That portion at the end where Earl Turner went, the organization, the order, the white, the lower, the less powerful white people who are fighting back against this system that is hostile to white people, 
when they start talking about we dealt with all of the questionable cases, right? Like there might be some white people here, or there might be some people who are saying they're white, but they're not really white. We dealt with all the questionable cases and got them out of here. I thought that was real important. I think that's something we touched on before. White people do argue and fight with one another about who will be accepted, who will be allowed to be a member of the white terrorist army. Uh, and again, keeping in mind, we said all along, this is this is not DNA, this is not genetics, this is just white people making a decision. The most powerful white people, they get the side who's going to be a part of the white army. I thought that was real important, that coming out uh, in the book, and the fact that I think all of that, I mean, you talk about malarkey. They, and I've heard this, not just in this book, but uh, I was, again, Daryl Baines. I mean, there's a lot of this sort of literature where white people write and get all their racist images and racist thoughts, racist worldviews, uh, tons of this stuff. We had Daryl Bain on Melanin Apocalypse, White Odyssey. I see a lot of similarities in those books. While I was uh, on break and didn't have my computer, uh, I was able to read. I read Black in Time. Uh, I've been meaning to make time to do so. was able to finish that, and it's another book written by a white person, science fiction, where uh, these black people and some white people, they travel through time, and they are trying to Basically, they're going in time trying to change the outcome of racism and white supremacy. The black people are trying to change history so that white supremacy never happens. The white people are trying to change history so that there are no black people, right? Uh, or at least that they stay in slavery if there are going to be black people. That's this whole book, right? And, I mean, it is, it is – I don't even know what to say other than I think it is extremely important when you start seeing – similarities between these books, Melanin Apocalypse and White Odyssey, written by Daryl Bain. He was a guest on the program two times. Those books were written uh, 21st century. Uh, White Odyssey wasn't written that long ago, in the last 10 years. Uh, as I said, The Turner Diaries, written in 1978, published in 1978. Uh, Black in Time, that also came out in the 70s. Just the commonalities, the focus on uh, the growing, that pops up all throughout Black in Time where somebody is getting hit in the growing. This person is getting hit in the growing. They're going to castrate this. I mean, it's all throughout the book, the focus on sex, particularly uh, black males representing some sort of sexual. But I mean, it's Dr. Welsing all day. One of the other uh, significant points, in my opinion, um, they, there was a passage, and this was actually in the first segment from the program this evening, the first kind of 40-minute segment that we listened to, where they were talking about they were making their threats, right? When they're, they're standing up to the system, the order, the white people, Earl Turner and his, his group, uh, they're issuing these threats. If you don't do such and such, if you don't leave this alone, you don't do what we want, uh, we're going to bomb. And we're going to bomb, 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 and we'll, we'll blow up everything. We'll kill all of you and blow up the whole planet. And I thought, now, they're making this as a threat. But it, in my view, is consistent not only with what we talked about in Yurugu, Dr. Marimba Ani, and that being the destructive, incomplete nature of Yurugu, white people. It reminded me science fiction, Planet of the Apes, and I, nice, because <laughs> Black and Time, book I just mentioned, the white 
Mann, who wrote the book Black in Time, also wrote the screenplay for the film Conquest of the Planet of the Apes. And that particular film, Planet of the Apes, that one is the one where the apes take over. They learn how to talk, they organize, and they overtake the white people, right? So the symbolism, and I'm saying that the same idea comes out, that idea of if we don't get things the way we want, if we don't, if white supremacy is not running in the manner that we want, we will blow up the entire planet. And that same idea, it's in Planet of the Apes, uh, the TV show, and in the film, Charlton Heston, that's how... Uh, the second installment in Planet of the Apes, Beneath, that's the second one, Beneath the Planet of the Apes, that's how it concludes. Charlton Heston taking a nuclear bomb and blowing up the entire planet. So I just, patterns, patterns. We talked about this before, and just recognizing when you see certain themes play themselves out over and over with regards to the conduct of white people. Very important, I think, to keep that in mind. Also, in this book in particular, since they did so much griping and complaining about so-called Jews, this is just one to think on, right? All the time hearing white people who say that, you know, they don't like so-called Jews. Some of them have come on the, the chat room are here for the cows. White people saying, well, I don't, I don't like the Jews, and it's their fault. They're the ones who are messing it up for white people, and it's the Jews. Do any of you all that hear these white people say this, do you hear any white people who say they don't like the Jews, do they become ferocious supporters uh, of what they call Palestine, the non-white people, individuals that I think are non-white in the area of the world known as Palestine? Do they become like ferocious supporters of them? Are they sending them arms or constructive resources? Like, do they in, involve themselves in any way with the non-white people who are in that area of the world? I was just curious about that. Any of the, the litany of white people who complain and gripe about so-called Jews? Just a thought exercise, one to keep in mind. Anyway, uh, some of the other patterns that stuck out to me uh, in the book, uh, let's see here. The cannibalism, the cannibalism. Uh, we talked about that. That's come up, and that's that's one of those where I can understand what people just say. This is just silly. Uh, I don't want to listen to this. This is just goofy. This is this is hot. you can't even take this serious. Uh, but again, that's one of those things where pattern. I see that same representation, and it's old and saying that black people are some sort of cannibals and savages. But there's been a lot of that lately, uh, not just with these many so-called zombie attacks, not just with that, but even I would say some of the imaging that they've been doing of President Obama, particularly when they put up the signs for what they call Obamacare, uh, and they've got him as some sort of witch doctor. It's consistent imaging, consistent, really, code. The code, I think, that white people use, uh, and I think it's, it's sophisticated enough. I know it's baseball season where they have codes where you'll see the manager communicating with their players, whether or not they want this person to steal a base, whether they want them to stay, how they want them to pitch to this particular batter, how they want, you know, how you want to attack this pitcher, what kind of swings you want to make with the bat, Dr. Welsing. They have all kinds of codes for transmitting information. And I think white people, their racist code is similar. They can just use certain words, use certain terms use certain ideas, certain concepts, 
and it works very well. Even the affirmative action, that right there is sending out a huge code to white people, the fact that this has become a major case. It was on the front page of the New York Times twice last week. Two days in a row they had that front page. In fact, it bumped what's going on in Libya with all that. It bumped that to the second page. Uh, that's how much attention white people wanted to focus on this. And I think this is going to be another issue where you are going to hear a lot of people who are sounding like Earl Turner, sounding like Dr. William Pierce. Oh, it's a crime to be a white person. Oh, you're attacking white people. Oh, you got to make everything. You got to give it. I'm telling you, while I didn't have my computer, it was some days it was just difficult. As I was saying, wow, this is what we've been talking about. It would be great to be back on the air to be calling all this out. I hope people are paying attention. I hope they're reading the paper or paying attention to what's happening on the plantation. But I just I think it's going to be an environment uh, where white people are going to be sounding like Earl Turner mad, feeling as though they're being attacked. Either way, it doesn't even really matter how the election comes out. Just the fact that you got President Obama was there and he's in contention. Uh, that's why you got white people wearing those shirts. Put the white back in White House. For folks who saw the YouTube video I just made. Uh, that's why you have all of these behaviors. And I think you're just you're going to have more, especially as you have more white sacrifices, white people who don't have as much money, don't have as much power, they're going to be angry. They are going to be looking to get at non-white people and to blame it, President Obama, non-white people that they're around on their job on a daily basis. I could easily see that happening. Uh, and I think white people, I think the more powerful white people are encouraging that. Just imagine how that's hitting the white brain computer. you got President Obama, President Nigger, going up for re-election, looking like he might he might even win. I, I said four years ago he's going to do two, uh, two terms. I have seen nothing to change my opinion on that. Forward, as I said. <laughs> they already they're forward. Uh, so even even if that's not the case, that it's that he could win, that he's even running. So you got that, and then you got this everyday reminder. White people can't even get in the school because they got these niggas taking over the campus. We can't even get a quality education. Got to go to some backup school in Louisiana. I can't even go to my alma mater where my mom and dad went to school, Abigail Fisher. That sort of environment you're going to have. And then at the same time, right, Alex Jones, keep that in mind too. Uh, they said, what, niggas are going to riot if President Obama, if he wins or if he doesn't win, excuse me, if, if Governor Romney wins the election, we're going to riot. Even just putting that message out, doesn't matter. We talked about that, or at least I've talked about that. Racism and white supremacy is not rational. It is based on deception. So it's not going to be logical. It's not going to be rational. It's not even truthful. Often, frequently, it's not even truthful. It's based on bogus information and lies. So white people can put that message out. You can get... Alex Jones and these other folks with the uh, the Drudge Report to say, yeah, the black people, they're online tweeting that, uh, yeah, we, we, we're going we're gonna to turn this out. We're going to burn this place down. We're going to let it ride. And we're going to go out and be gangster if President Obama doesn't get it. Now, just as I said, thinking about all the black people who have been complaining about President Obama and they don't like him either and he's not doing anything for us, don't even think he's a black person. All of that will get kicked to the side, and you will have white people just going on that less powerful, 
Earl Turner, white people just going on that. Yeah, we're tired of these niggas. They've been talking about riding all year. I'm tired of Trayvon Martin, and uh, you got that trial that's still being talked about. I saw that the other day. They were uh, looking at a trial date. I heard June 2013. They were just talking about a trial date for Trayvon Martin. I think racist man, racist woman. And this is nothing new to what I haven't been saying for most of the year, I think. I just I see an environment where racist man, racist woman, the more powerful white people, they are looking to galvanize white people to be racist. They're looking to create that sort of environment where white people feel justified. White people, uh, whether it's legit or not, at least they're going to say that they're feeling attacked. They're going to say that they're feeling that the environment is hostile to white people and that they are justified in responding and whatever means they deem necessary, including being directly violent, in my opinion, with probably large numbers of non-white people. Been saying that the whole year. Uh, that no surprise. I'm just. I am. In my view, I see a lot. Unfortunate. Unfortunate. As goofy and silly as it is. I see a lot of the things that Dr. Pierce is talking about in the Turner Diaries. I see a lot of that operating right now, unfortunately. Uh, and I would hope non-white people uh, are just being attentive. That's one of the real sad things that I saw. Uh, while I didn't have my computer, I, it, it reminded me of how much time I spend on my computer just looking for information. I spend a lot of time on my computer, period, but a lot of it is just information, trying to, to get different news reports, and listeners send me a ton of information, so just checking that out, and uh, if you listen to the compensatory call-in, we normally do about an hour or 40 minutes of news at the beginning of the program, and just to get the clips, the audio clips to do that, uh, it takes a lot of time looking at news articles, and I, I would say easily 15 hours a week. So not having my, my own computer, I didn't have 15 hours a week to look for news, so I really felt uh, deprived of information. So I was you know, trying to read the paper. I was trying to compensate for that absence of my computer as best I could. So I'm reading, you know, different papers. I'm trying to do like Dr. Welsing and Dick Gregory, you know, go to the go get five, six newspapers uh, when you go to the stand or when you go to the library or wherever you can access a hard copy newspaper at, you know, go get five or six, get the Times and as many as you can get, the Wall Street Journal and read them up, get your local paper wherever you happen to be at and check out what's going on. And uh, it was it was just a ton of information on racism, white supremacy uh, the whole time that I was off, and I really I felt like I heard a lot of white people, like, as, I, as I've been saying, labeling other white people as racist. Chris Matthews and the folks uh, at MSNBC, Rachel Maddow, they were coming out pretty tough after uh, the second debate. Uh, they, I saw Ann Coulter. She was on television with Kevin Powell. I think I put that on my Facebook page where he called her a racist. I think they did like a nine, ten-minute exchange on the Joy Behar program. This was like two weeks ago, and he called her a racist by the end of the segment. Kevin Powell is a black male, non-white male. Uh, but I've just I've been seeing more and more and more of it, um, and I just I, I easily could see uh, it becoming very popular to have white people sounding like Earl Turner, white people who are promoting ideas like what Dr. Pierce is talking about, less refined, more explicit 
yes, I'm a racist white supremacist, and I should be. In fact, what I'd say is they're probably going to use words. They probably won't say, yes, I'm a racist, or yes, I'm a white supremacist. Some of them will, but I'm sure you'll probably hear a lot more of, I'm a white nationalist, or I'm a white racialist. I think that's what uh, my man at Save White People, I think that's what he said, I'm a white racialist. They won't say I'm a racist, right? They understand words. So they'll they'll use a similar term. They'll try to couch it in, I'm just for the white race. I think black people should be for the black race. I think Asian people should, you know, blah, 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 blah. They'll just run it that way. But that's the way that they might couch it. But I think you're going to see a lot more of that. And I would just say it is a, really any time, as long as the system of white supremacy exists. But I would encourage folks, really be mindful. This is no time to, to be slack. I say that frequently, but I would challenge all non-white people regardless of what happens with the election, how you feel about that, if you're going to vote or not, really look at things that you can do. If it's committing to being informed, paying attention to what's going on, do that. If it's, I can, I can put a blog, a blog post together. You can write. You can use that blog space to gather content if you don't want to write anything original or if you don't want to make videos to put on the blog or audio content or whatever, in photos, images, uh, that's another. You could make a blog that's all images, just racist, white supremacist images that you see online, or you could go out and take your own pictures, right? If you are into photography, that was something that I used to really enjoy, being into photography. If that's your thing, you could just do a blog of racist images that might spark people to think. You know, what's the quote, Mr. Fuller's quote? In racial matters, many look, but few see. See what? See what they're looking at. Maybe images to challenge the way that people think about what they've seen. Maybe even taking images that people have already seen and just taking a second look at this, right, within the context. Whatever ideas, just really challenge yourself to be more active. Uh, I think white people, uh, the white people who believe in and practice racism, white supremacy, they are not lazy about their endeavor. Uh, Dr. William Pierce, he wrote this book in 1978. You can look online. He's dead now. He's been dead for, I think, almost 10 years. I think he uh, passed away in 2002. But if you check, uh, and uh, we asked uh, Dr. Kevin McDonald about it. He said, Dr. Pierce, he quit his job, and he devoted as much of his time and energy as he could to pushing the view of racism, white supremacy that he had and what he thought white people should be doing to preserve their empire. Videos, he was talking, he was doing his work on up into ripe old age, on his, on his white supremacist grind, there we go. Uh, I would just challenge non-white people to have the same dedication, the same discipline to getting out and getting things done, uh, whether it's writing, whatever skills you might have, writing, photography, video, whatever. Make it happen and be devoted to it. Uh, I would say right now is is so critical. The confusion is so great. It to me it hurt me. I, I do see we have a caller, so I'll get their line. Just my uh, suggestion, my recommendation, and, and really encouraging non-white people uh, to take this serious. You know, we say we're at war, and Dr. Welsing talks about this is war. Mr. Fuller, when he was on talking about being a professional soldier. Take that seriously. White people, as foolish as this sounds, Dr. Pierce is serious, or was serious while he was here. 
Dr. William Pierce, as goofy as this book might sound, he was real serious about racism, white supremacy. Super serious. We should be just as serious. And I mean on the grind. Really look at the way that you use your time and energy and see if that is the most productive way for you to be functioning on a planet dominated by racism, white supremacy, terrorism against black people. Really look at the way that you're using your time and energy. Are you getting the maximum out of your use of time and energy? I'm just saying all that because I was, while we were on the break, while not broadcasting, I was talking with some other non-white people who are less confused. I was talking to them about some of these incidents, the thing, I think it was the thing in Libya. That was one of the incidents that we were talking about. And I was starting in, and they all gave me the deer in the headlights look. And I was like, you know what I'm talking about? Libya, right? Christopher Stevens? Uh, and no, you don't, you don't. None of you know what I'm talking about. And it was, I mean, it was crushing because I'm like, wow, this is, white people have been talking about this every day for the last month. I mean, this, in my opinion, this was one of the biggest news stories of the last 30 days, what's happened in Libya. This keeps coming up in the presidential debate. They were talking about it during the program. And I was talking to non-white people who had never heard of this, and they didn't know anything, like nothing. It was starting from scratch, like, okay, this is what happened. <laughs> like, whoa, to have non-white, in my opinion, and I could be wrong. I know some people are not feeling the whole read and newspaper and all that. I don't agree. In my opinion, that is, oh, that is terrible. That is the worst possible thing non-white people can be doing where you don't know what's going on. You don't know what white people are talking about. You don't know what white people, uh, what news reports or what world events white people are saying are significant. You have no idea about that. Real dangerous. And I think a lot of non-white people, unfortunately, we do not invest enough time and energy studying white people, studying what they're talking about, events that are happening around the world. And as long as that's the case, oof, we are going to have major problems replacing the system of white supremacy with justice. So I would just – I'll hit the uh, caller. I'll just remind folks, again, Dr. Frances Cress-Welsing, a lot of folks have said that they've benefited from her work. They've learned a lot from her. I have been told, uh, and I've heard her say she went to the newsstand to get five newspapers, not one, five newspapers. Can everybody who's listening uh, right now, can they say that they at least read one newspaper for the just one? I'm pitching that rhetorically. Dick Gregory, another one, he's been on the guest as well. I know a lot of people respect, appreciate what he's done to work against racism, white supremacy over his long life, many, many years. Dick Gregory. I have been told, went to the newsstand to get 20 newspapers. When you hear him talking about different world events and different aspects of racism, white supremacy, this is someone I am told who reads a lot of newspapers. So really, you know, invest that same dedication in informing yourself. I'll get the caller. person that dialed in, uh, 3921. Did you have questions, comments, 3921? Your line should be open. Uh, greetings, Gus and the callers. Uh, this is Praz. Uh, as I was reading the book, I was wondering if he was trying to have the unrefined white supremacist versus the refined white supremacist, because oftentimes you'd you'd have him talk about the system, you know, and 
non-whites were mentioned as having jobs like security guards, low-level positions. But, I mean, because he was very explicit about any jobs that were held by black people, he specifically mentioned it. It's like I, it gives me an impression that whoever was in charge of the system was probably uh, also another white person who, who maybe was more refined in their practice of racism and white supremacy. So I was just wondering uh, how much of it was him pitting the unrefined white supremacists versus the refined white supremacists. I think he uh, states that earlier in the book uh, pretty clearly, uh, Dr. Pierce, where he he seems to make a distinction in saying that uh, where you have black officers, like he said, the, that they would have an easy time getting to the Pentagon because there were mostly black officers there and they were inept. Like he, I think he makes a litany of those statements uh, throughout the book, uh, and then also about the the people who are in charge, basically that they are not black people. I think that's that's an important point, and I think that's something that he makes clear consistently that the black people are not the ones running things; that these are Either other white people who just have a different view about racism, white supremacy, or they don't want to practice it, or they're not practicing it, they don't have any white racial solidarity, or they're the so-called Jews. Uh, But I think, uh, or at least I thought, I thought he made that clear and consistent, that it's not that black people are in charge, that these are just other white people uh, or so-called Jews who are putting these black people and non-white people in these places where they shouldn't be and allowing all of this stuff to happen. Yeah, I agree, and I think that's an important point. Anders Breivik, make sure I get his name in as well. I think that he was saying the same thing uh, last year, that he he was upset. He didn't like the uh, Islamization. I think that was a term he used uh, that was going on in Norway, that he didn't like all of that, but that he understood that it was other white people who were responsible for that. It was their fault. They weren't doing what they were supposed to do to preserve the system of domination. Uh, Caller, are you still with us, sir? Uh, yes, yes. Oh, okay. okay. I I also noticed, um, you know, I occasionally play computer games, and uh, I play this. I played this game a few years back called uh, Fallout 3, and it seems like a lot of the themes from that video game are, it sounds like, basically like I'm reading the book. And uh, basically it says uh, here, uh, the player is an inhabitant of Vault 101, a survival shelter designed to protect up to 1,000 humans from the nuclear fallout. When the player's character's father disappears under mysterious circumstances, the player is forced to escape the vault and journey into the ruins of Washington, D.C. to track him down. Along the way, the player is assisted by another of human human survivors and must battle a myriad of enemies that inhabit the area now known as the Capital Wasteland. And so basically, this is just, they took almost like the Turner Diaries and they made it into a, a computer game. And this this game has sold, like, probably millions of copies. And it's gotten high, very high ratings. 
but I'm sure it was uh, very much inspired by the Turner Diaries. It sounds like it. What's the name of this game again? This is called Fallout 3. Fallout 3. Mm-hmm. You it came out in 2008. Yeah, it's it's on computer, it's on PlayStation, Xbox. It's been a very popular game. They even have used the word enclave. I mean, that's like a faction of uh, these guys who uh, have all this technology. And uh, so you just travel around. You have mutated humans. I mean, it's it's like they lifted it directly from the book. They just dealt with the part after the uh, fallout. Wow. Wow. Those video games, I said, uh, Christopher uh, Stevens, uh, they said the game he was playing was Eve, uh, where his handle was Vile Rat. I think those video games, they probably a lot of them have been influenced by the Turner Diaries um, and, you know, similar uh, racist views. I know uh, there are a lot of games that have a similar form, like Resident Evil is pretty close to that. There are a lot of games that are similar to that sort of, uh, format. Something bad has happened and you've got to get the, the band of white people together and they've got to kill off whatever the, the threat is and um, reestablish whatever. It's, it, there are a lot of video games, I think, that have a similar premise uh, around them to kind of get, I think, to get white people comfortable uh, with thinking about doing that sort of thing. You might have to go out and kill a bunch of, of non-white people, uh, push comes to shove, and being ready to do that. Yeah. I'm going to see if that's uh, if they got any videos of that online, uh, Fallout 3 on YouTube or something, where I can check it out. See it, it it's like. very graphic. I mean, when you when you fire when you fire your um, pistol against an enemy, uh, you can target specific body parts, and then it goes into a slow motion mode where you actually see the body part being uh, annihilated in a wow. very graphic fashion. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Urugu, what to say, Urugu. I, and, and I would say keep that in mind because I don't even know. I'm not a big, you know, video gamer, so I don't know what the the more current titles are, but I'm sure it's, it seems like there's always a popular game where you can kill a lot of people, uh, Grand Theft Auto or what have It seems like there's always some game that's really popular where you can shoot a bunch of people, kill a bunch of people, lots of blood and guts squirting everywhere. I would say keep that in mind. What do you think the white people, particularly white males, white men who are 35 and younger, what do you think they have in mind when they're playing those type of games, particularly with the election season, President Obama, uh, affirmative action being front-page news every day, uh, what do you think is going through their mind when they're playing these sort of shoot 'em up games? Uh, just throwing that out there rhetorically, uh, something to think about. Um, when this game right here, or any others, did you know any white people who played this game? Uh, what they thought about it? Like, were you were you around any white game players of this? Um, you know, just reading the reviews that I saw online, um, people loved the game. They thought it was excellent, best game ever. <laughs>
But I personally, I don't think I have, uh, at least not that I know of, uh, heard anybody comment on the game directly to me. Oh, Gus, you also mentioned Resident Evil, right? So Resident Evil, they have a game called Resident Evil Raccoon City. Now, when when I uncode that, you know, you think raccoons are black people. So it's basically like saying, you know, uncoded, it would be like resident nigger, nigger city. <laughs> and the zombies, in a sense, are non-whites. And the evil is the non-whites, specifically black people. Raccoons are blacks, synonymous. So when you uncode that, even just to think of the name Resident Evil Raccoon City, it's like telling you right there what it, what it's about. And I think that um, uh, white supremacists would know exactly what that means when they read that title, and that's probably a game that they would buy in mass quantities. Absolutely, absolutely. They made it into a movie. Uh, it's become a huge uh, franchise. I don't even know how many of the games there are because they made a bunch of them, and then the film too. Uh, they're uh, I think it's more than 30 of the movies that spiraled out of this video game. Uh, but absolutely, the Resident Evil Raccoon City. Um, in fact, I remember, I didn't play the game, but I remember one of the later editions, so after Resident Evil Raccoon City came out, there was another Resident Evil, and I guess this one was even more explicitly racist, to the point where people were complaining about this before the game came out. I'm trying to see if I can find it. Oh, uh, Resident, you're talking about Resident Evil 5, because they're in Africa. Yes, I remember there, and I don't know the number. Like I said, I'm not a gamer. You have to forgive my ignorance of the exact number and all, but I do remember, yes, they were in Africa, and people were complaining before the game came out. People were complaining when they heard about the synopsis uh, that, hey, this sounds pretty racist. And this white guy did a video on YouTube, and he was saying that he came to their defense. Of course, he's a white person. He defends them. They're not racist. You all need to wait for the game to come out. This is ridiculous. How are you going to brand them like that and blah, blah, blah. The game comes out, and it's way worse than everybody thought. (laughs) Tons of white people are like, oh, my God, this is so racist. You're just gunning down dark people on the continent of Africa. This is terrible. And so the same white guy who had defended them, he comes back, and he's like, I defended these guys from making this racist video. And this thing is horrible. You're just shooting down black people and blowing their brains out and blah, blah, blah. And I think they were in, like, leopard prints. I mean, it was just way, it's whatever, as bad as you can imagine a game to be in terms of promoting racism, that's about what this was. And he, I mean, it's great. He spent, like, ten minutes. He showed footage so you can see the game, what it looks like, and what he was thinking it was going to be and why he came out defending them. And then when he actually saw it, fantastic to see a white person have to own up to this. But... Yeah, see, they have a pattern. And then if you watch the film, too, they kill off black people in the film. Hold on, I'm not encouraging Dr. Welsing. Reading is more important than television. I'm just saying that if you are familiar with all this, there's a long pattern with the Resident Evil franchise of how yeah. they feel about black people and what their game is all about. Yeah, there's a scene in um, the Resident Evil 5 game where it's like in, right in the beginning of the game where you walk into this town and, and you you can tell that it's, 
you know, somewhere in Africa, they don't really specify. And as you, as you're you're just walking, you know, you're not doing anything, and then you have a group of uh, uh, non-white black people, and they all are looking at you with an evil eye, and you just you're walking past them, and literally it's making them very menacing. And you haven't even started the game yet. The zombies haven't even come out yet. <laughs> and it, it's a very powerful scene in that game. And it's in the very beginning of the game. And they try to sort of compensate by that by giving the main character who is, uh, appears to be a white man a fem- black female partner. Hmm. But it doesn't really compensate for the, the amount of uh, uh, racist imagery that you see in the, in the game. Wow. Yeah. Context of white supremacy. Those video games worth a uh, worth a program. Although I'm I'm probably not the best person to do a uh, an analysis of the racism in video games because I'm not as familiar with the uh, the products, uh, particularly the more newer uh, games and what have you that are out. I'm not not as familiar. I'm sure. Uh, yeah, there we go. I'm sure uh, for the folks out there who play or uh, if you have children, if they're knowledgeable. I would say just sit around and watch. Uh, that was something that I used to do. People that I knew who played games, I would just sit around and watch just to see the images and the characters. Just watch to see uh, how they represent black people, how they represent white people. Uh, I know the game I had spoke about before, uh, Fluidity. It would be a great game except because you're, you're playing as water and you're just trying to do different things with water, put out fires and all that Great wholesome game, no body parts flying around, you don't have to kill anybody. Uh, great game, and, you know, taking care of the planet, the resources, right? Would be great, except one of your tasks is to get rid of this black goo that seems to be popping up everywhere. So you have to keep getting rid of it, get rid of the blackness, get rid of the blackness. And, uh, and while you're getting rid of the blackness, you have to help white people. They don't even have people in the game for the most part, but occasionally people do pop out and they are white and you're supposed to help them. They have problems. You're supposed to help them solve problems. And I just thought that right there, that is huge. When you've got this game, supposed to be what they would call green, environmentally friendly, promoting uh, responsible conduct towards the planet. But the main two, in my view, two of the main ideas that you get from the game, blackness, ugh, should be getting rid of anything black. That's trash. That's dirt. Oof, don't want any blackness around. Something to be avoided. Black. And white people should be helped. If a white person has a problem, try to help them solve it. Just that right there, in my view, would make that sort of game poison for non-white people. And as you've heard, Resident Evil, that sort of thing, you got a lot of games that have that same racist thinking of Dr. William Pearson that you get from the Turner Diaries that will influence, that will go right to your brain computer and end up with very confused non-white people uh, functioning the way that racists want us to, that helps them maintain their system. I think might be lost. You have a lot of confused victims in the Turner Diaries where you've got black people who are dancing and doing drugs, silliness. I mean, these are all racist stereotypes. I'm just saying make sure that, you know, non-white people, we don't end up functioning like that. 
I think we've done uh, our full three. Uh, did our caller, did you have anything else you wanted to share with listeners, anything else about the book, or anything you wanted to get in before we wrap things up? Um, oh, no, that's that's it for now. Right on. Thank you for dialing in and sharing. Uh, I'm, if I can find that video, I'm going to see if I can locate it once the program wraps up. I'll have my hands free. Uh, I will post it on my Facebook page, uh, the page facebook.com forward slash the problem is white people. Facebook.com forward slash the problem is white people. Uh, we will be back tomorrow, uh, 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific. Tomorrow evening, compensatory call in, dial in, you can catch up, uh, homework, you know, one, it can be one article, one observation, one incident, just one thing to share uh, that happened over the three weeks since we last broadcasted. It can be from the debates or a news story, uh, just one thing to share. One thing to share. One thing, uh, I know Blackie said he had a story where someone called him a nigger. That can be his one. Uh, something happened on work, uh, on the plantation, on the job. You can dial in and share about that. One thing to share for the compensatory call-in tomorrow evening, 9 p.m. We'll probably uh, broadcast, if the white people permit, we'll probably be on this talk show page and hopefully the Black Talk Radio Network as well. I'll put the info on the Facebook page. I'll tweet it as well. Thank you all for listening in and being patient while we were uh, down for a few weeks. Thank you again for all of the support, uh, encouragement, nice emails uh, folks mailed in. Really appreciate all that. I hope the program has been and continues to be worthy of your time and energy. Hopefully we will be back on the grind. No more uh, interruptions. Uh, You can definitely check out the YouTube page. Uh, two new videos this week. I said when I get my computer back, I'll be back on the grind. Uh, I think I've been trying to do that. Uh, one of the videos, it shows you how to uh, change your IP address so you can access videos outside of uh, your particular so-called country. Uh, you can check that on YouTube. And the video that I did most recently uh, is one of my favorite moments from the second presidential debate, President Obama, where he uh, said that he was used to being interrupted. I, too, am accustomed to racist man, racist woman, racist child interrupting non-white people at will, any, any non-white person, President Obama, anybody else. Uh, it's on YouTube. I uh, posted a link on my Facebook page, on Twitter. Uh, you can check it out. Uh, let me know if you think it is constructive. We'll be back tomorrow. Uh, Justice should be with us over the weekend as well. Uh, if you have any questions, confusion, you can shoot me an email uh, until justice at gmail.com until justice at gmail.com you can also add us on Twitter I put uh, the updates for the program on Twitter at until justice again on Twitter at until justice invest if you think the program is constructive you can put links to the content let folks know that we're out there uh, back on the air put it on your Twitter put it on Facebook all that Uh, If you have any problems finding any of the archives, you can let me know that as well. Some folks uh, did that while we were were down, and I was able to get them links. So let me know if you need a link on archives. Yeah, we'll be back tomorrow. Anything else, didn't uh, have time to get it in, we'll be back tomorrow. Uh, Thank you, everybody, for tuning in.
Invest, remain as safe as possible, replace white supremacy with justice as soon as possible. Context of white supremacy is signing out. It has been time. Thank you all for tuning in. Cal signing out. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, What's your brother. Problem? You're a victim. I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs> With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.